the melody is slightly adjusted by me. Yeah. And then this was submitted to another system called Music Transformer, which is a transformer system that's been trained on hundreds of hours of piano performance. Oh. So it's a like AI transformer transformer. Yes, it's yes. that kind of transformer. Yeah. And it it's conditioned on the melody and it creates an accompaniment. A what? A, an, an, accompaniment. A, an accompaniment. So you hear the piano. Yes. You hear the piano in the background. Yeah. And that accompaniment is created by the uh, music transformer. Right. Now there's some uh, changes that I've made. MIDI symbol things generate, it's, right? It's MIDI, yes. but it's actually performed on a robotic piano called a disclavier. So it's a real piano, okay. but it's being controlled by hammers. Hammers? What do you mean? I mean that the piano is a key. You press oh, it so it's a physical it's a robot actually playing it. Not what? a physical robot, but the piano itself activates the hammer, uh-huh. and it just plays the. Um, it's I like see. a regular, like you have a human there, but yeah. you'd not need to depress the key. The key is mechanically made to depress. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then you have a human singing, yeah. and the lyrics were co-created with. Um, not chat GPT, but mm-hmm. a GPT-like system. Really? Oh. Yeah. And so it was created with myself selecting, et cetera, et cetera. So some prompting there? and then Prompting, you, yes. And you, then you did the prompting and, and then the tweaking on, yes. well, you, you, I want this, and then you got some and you tweaked it and commented on it. Yeah, and, and built it up that way. And it's the same with the, the Music Transformer. And then we structured together. We got together with Lisa, who is the one singing, and Daniel, who's the producer and also plays uh, mm-hmm. violin on parts. And then I put in some accordion. In oh, that. And so, so that was the entry to the AI Song Contest 2021. Which song contest is that? Uh, the AI Song Contest. It's so literally called AI it, Song Contest? Yes, I didn't know about since that. Since 2020. It's been running. And I love the AI song contest, you know, playing on. And there are so many things going on that we, you know, when you're in the niche, you you know it, but the general public doesn't know how far this has gone. Mm -hmm. I mean, like now, now chat GPT is the, is the rage simply because it broke into mainstream. Mm. But if you, if you start looking at. Well, it's stable diffusion. Yeah. And Dali. Yeah. Yeah. The same, the same. But it, but it's like it's the whole point when they bre- break into mainstream, yeah. In some ways, then media picks up on it. Like, wow, now this is happening. Well, well the user experience becomes so simply mm-hmm. simplified. That's that, true. That everyone can say, "Oh, now we hear something." Swedish as well.
Wow. So yeah. this was entered into the AI song contest. 2021. Oh, 2021. Year. Le- last year. Last mm. year. So here we are listening to music mm-hmm. generated by AI and some augmentation co-created, from I would say. Co-created. Co-created AI, myself and my colleagues, Daniel and Lisa. And what is the AI song contest? Is it part of some conference or? In 2020, yeah. some researchers had a crazy idea to have somewhat like a Eurovision contest, yeah. but focused on artificial intelligence. Could um, songs be created that can, can be competitive with the Eurovision Song Contest using AI. And the first year they had something like um, 13 entries yeah. from all over Europe and one from Australia. Australia. And they love Song Contest. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they, ended, they actually ended up winning. That, oh, really? That one. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. And as parts of this contest, you have to submit a document that describes how AI was involved in the process. Mm-hmm. And so that's a part of the package that is judged by uh, a panel of judges, uh-huh. expert judges, but there's also a component of the public judging. So it's both the subjective like um, quality of it, but also the professional, the technical part of how it was created. Somewhat. And the criteria by which the entries are judged is not that clear. They specify on the website, you know, the variety of, of categories. And my uh, my colleague Arujin here is one of the judges on oh. the AI song contest, and and became involved through uh, working with myself on the Mosaic project at uh, KTH here. And then in 2021, there was something like um, uh, 30 entries, and then last year or this year there was 43. So it's really ballooned in uh, popularity. Who is competing? Is it mainly universities or is it also other? In the beginning, it was it was researchers at universities. Mm-hmm. And now it's it's gotten to the point of people have access to these great tools online and right. you can start creating immediately. You don't need to have a degree in computer science to get these things running. Mm-hmm. And so anyone with an internet connection yeah. and maybe somebody with a GPU can be doing some stuff yeah. at home. But you have a, a much wider group of people competing in yeah. this con- competition. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and, and please give some details about this song that we'll just listen to. How, how was that created? The melody comes from a system that we developed called Folk RNN. It's a recurrent neural network that's trained with a, a vocabulary that's sort of made to be expressive for Irish traditional dance music. And it's expressed in sort of a symbolic format using text or characters mm-hmm. called ABC notation. And we devised a representation that would that you could essentially feed one hot encoded vectors in the vocabulary. There's 137 elements in the vocabulary, and it goes through three layers of uh, long short-term memory units mm-hmm. into a final layer of uh, softmax that you can sample from right. over the vocabulary. And it, you build up these transcriptions character by character, token by token. And so the system that we developed does exactly this. It treats these uh, tunes as if they're sentences made of symbols, mm-hmm. and it learns to produce the statistics of, or it learns to extract the statistics of it and reproduce things like it. So now, what does that mean? Does that mean sort of that when you're representing it now like like text, it can understand which phrases fits well together, i.e. how a melody l- logically 
flows. Not necessarily melody, but the the sentence, the sequence of symbols. Okay. And this these kinds of models, these long short term memory networks or recurrent neural networks in general, build up these conditional probability distributions that are uh, different depending on the order. So the system has seen these five specific tokens. Like it's got the meter, it's got the mode, it's got the first three notes. And the system is asked, what's the most probable next note or what's a likely next note or symbol? And, then, and so the tune evolves from, if we start with these three tones, typically it, huh? the song would go in this pattern yeah. here. Yeah, and so it learns to, from the left to right, it learns to build up these symbols. Now we look at it in terms of music where we know how to interpret the symbols and how to perform it on our instruments, and then we can make judgments of the, whether it's good or not. Mm. But all it knows is this next symbol has to be a C, given these three, because this is the training item that I have seen. Mm. And so the training procedure is, all right, push, push your weights this way and this way so that you have more probability weight on that specific token. Mm. And we build in no musical knowledge whatsoever. It's only looking at tens of thousands of transcriptions of Irish traditional dance tunes. And it has this emergent uh, uh, property of building up sequences that are musically plausible, by and large, extremely good quality, let's say. Not all of them are winners. And this actually, this melody in this song that was used is a reject from a critic that I built to try to find the most characteristic Irish jigs in a collection of 100,000 generated by the system. It was rejected And I said, okay, let's look at through the rejections to make sure the critic is working right. I found this one. No, it's not a jig. Definitely not. But I liked it enough that I kept it to the side to say, I'm going to use it in some musical project later. And that's how it came to this, into this song. Hmm. And then you go on because from the RNN, what happens next? We took that melody. We needed an accompaniment to build some, some idea. You don't just want to play the melody by itself. You want to have some stuff around it to decorate it. And so I took it to another AI system called Music Transformer, which was developed by Anna Huang at Google Magenta. Oh, this was Magenta. part of her PhD in 2018. And this is a transformer network that can be conditioned on the melody to build a piano accompaniment because it's been trained on uh, hundreds of hours of, of piano performances recorded at a disc clavier, which is a mechanical piano that it detects how fast and which key you press. And so it's been trained on all this and it can say, okay, it's got this melody, what's the underlying harmonic progression and the accompaniment? And so I put this melody into the system. It created several accompaniments and I chose from one of those and then arranged it a little bit more, fixed some errors. And then that's what you hear presented by a essentially a robotic piano called a disc clavier. Yamaha makes this piano. They can just play itself. Huh. So we also have Ru Ying with us, I think, on the network. I'm not sure. Can you hear us, Ru Ying? Uh, maybe not. But she was part of uh, the song contest in some way, you said? She started judging in 2021. Ah, so she was part of some jury or is... Yeah, she's part of the jury and huh? sort of the um, um, helping spearhead this effort. Okay. Mm. And bringing more people on board. And, and as the number of submission grows, of course, the number of judges mm. must grow too because it becomes too time consuming. Mm. Uh, so many questions, you know, rising from this, you know, who's really the owner of this song? Is, is it you or is it... Uh 
I, I would say it is me or yeah. it is myself, Daniel and Lisa. Right. Who sang it and produced it and helped. In a sense, we were writing it together. We were exploring a variety of ideas from the beginning. Mm -hmm. First, the, the idea we had for the 2021 song contest was built around a a rather stupid tune called the Cuckoo's Wedding that the system had, yeah. a, a, pre, a first version of our system that learned to title the tunes, mm. created this rather ridiculous tune and named it the Cuckoo's Wedding. <laughs> and so we were thinking about, have a story about a wedding in a forest and using this tune, etc. Yeah. But then it wasn't working and I came up with another idea, which was this rather tragic song about uh, a tragic experience that my wife and I had in the beginning of the pandemic is when our six-year-old puppy died because oh. um, ran into the road. And, and oh. so we, uh, so this was a way to work through my grief in a sense. Yeah. It was very, it would, I wouldn't have ever thought to do it by myself. Mm. I didn't have the courage, but working together with a chatbot to mm. sort of, Describe the situation mm. and write some poetry about it and selecting lines that was generated by the computer helped me sort of get through it. Mm. And my colleagues, uh, Lisa and Daniel, agreed that this would be a good way to go for the, the song. So, mm. yeah. so do you see the AI used in this co-creation of the song as more of a tool or can it be a participant similar to the humans as well? I think it was, I was kind of a participant, like a therapist would be a participant in one's life. <laughs> Not necessarily the author, but a guide. But, yeah, but, a guide. It, but to you, it's, 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 the involvement is more than calling it a tool. Yeah, I would say this is, this is much more than a tool. It's not an effects pedal. No, exactly. It's something that responds at a really, at a high level, I would say, to topics. Hi, Regine. Can you hear us now? Yes, now you're here. Yeah, right. I, I never uh, left the room, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, that's uh, just the, the, the system just rejected the microphone, but we can see you and hear you in real time here. We are joined by Wait. Bob and uh, Anders and uh, Hendrik here. Yeah. Hi. 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 Hi, welcome, Irene. Nice to meet you, Regine. Nice to meet you. Uh, I just can't see the video and I, that's okay, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We just spoke about the AI song contest here with Bob, uh, and you've been involved in that for some time, right? Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Uh, yes, um, I uh, started organize, uh, being a part of the organize, uh, organizing team in the um, 2021, which is the contest uh, second year, yeah. and then we've uh, now uh, completed our third edition of um, AI Song Contest, and now we're actually busy preparing for the fourth edition. Yeah, so nice. I joined in its uh, the second year. Yeah. Uh, were you part of the jury in some way, trying to select the winner or? Yes, yeah, so uh, the way, so the, the jury process, we, you know, we're still working um, to improve it uh, year after year, but yes, for the at least the second, the first three years, the organizing team is also part of um, the jury team, but mm -hmm. we also have a, much uh, bigger board of expert um, jury members besides the organizers. And AI being part of uh, selecting the winner yet? Not yet. That was <laughs> actually, yeah, that was an idea that definitely was brought up at some point, I think, this year, oh, really? um, in including uh, an AI uh, judge. Yeah. I think that was uh, that was mentioned. That would be really Haven't right. acted on that yet. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're getting so many submissions, you're going to need it to scale. That's the point, right? <laughs> yeah, if everyone is totally. going to you know, contribute with songs, you probably need some kind of yeah scaling for the selection as well. And and you can you just elaborate? How, how do you select the song? What kind of criteria or judgment process do you have there? It's great that um that I actually I think I have our um document port yes i actually thought that this might be asked so i have uh, <laughs> a process document uh on my screen right now so uh the way it works is um as part of the submission the team uh submission process the teams uh do not only have to submit their song but accompanying the song um it's actually uh, a usually three to four page long uh, process document so we asked, we have a uh, kind of a template, which I'm looking at now, a process document template that we uh, uh, made um, accessible to the teams before, uh, after they en enter the contest. Mm -hmm. So basically there are several categories of, uh, of content that they have to write about and reflect on uh, about the whole process. So it's actually a very process-oriented contest. So it's not just the final song. We very much care about and the human AI co-creation process. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I can I, just that you know the four things, four categories we have. Number one is kind of the song itself, right? So then there's so the song itself. Uh, the way we judge this is we'll first always listen to the song without looking in the process document, just uh, appreciating appreciating the song as a song, like um, a subjective kind, kind of, of um, experience of the quality in some way. Yes, exactly. Just judging the song, you know, um, on its own. And then uh, there's, I'm looking here, there's a workflow, um, uh, the workflow, so kind of the AI, um, uh, the process of including AI in the song, in the songwriting process. Um, there is actually, yeah, there is also a diversity, um, uh, ethical, cultural considerations uh, part. And so there's a lot that goes under that category. For instance, there's data ethics, right? So teams are asked to also kind of uh, specify uh, whether they have, you know, how they assess the, uh, the, the, the data, data set and mm. um, kind of do they have the rights um, to, to using it. So there's that. Um, there's, I think, a collaboration teamwork um, segment. So, mm. yeah, and then there's one uh, category that's called pushing boundaries of creative expression. So kind of whether AI is actually, um, yeah, pushing the boundaries yeah. of, of the creative process. So, yeah, there's... Yeah, I'm, um, super interesting, kind of and, and I'm getting to think about the you know the robot cap. So in other AI conferences, there is this competition for robots to play soccer or football, and the goal there is that in 2050, the winner of the robot league uh, should be winning over the winner in the human world uh, world, world championship like that we're seeing right now. So we'll see who, who wins the human championship right now, but potentially in 2050, the, the winning team uh, in in soccer in Robot Cup will, Robot Cup will actually win of the humans potentially. Do you think the same, same thing will happen between Eurovision Song Contest and AI Song Contest? That at some point, you know, they will merge and they will compete together and, and someone will win over the other? You mean the AI um, kind of creator versus the human creator? Yeah. Yeah, I guess for for the contest, um, at, at least um, for the first uh, few years, we've pretty been focusing on, you know, so it's in a way you, you can't really win the competition if you just have a one-click, like, 100% AI-generated song. Mm. Um, 
process. So it's kind of uh, focusing a lot on that kind of human involvement mm. um, as a co-creator uh, of um, the AI partner, right? So, yeah. Um, but then there's another extreme of, I think, we're in the industry and in, uh, where you see a lot of push for kind of the convenient, the fast, right? Mm. So kind of really re- uh, getting human out of the picture, right? I think there's that's also happening. Um, so, so I think at least for the contest, um, at the moment, we're still focusing on, on kind of that process of um, co-creativity. Bob, what do, you, what do you think about the future of the AI Song Contest? Do you think um, they will merge and that become a natural part of the Eurovision Song Contest in the future? That, you know, in 10 years, anyone entering the Eurovision Song Contest may have using AI as a co-creation partner, so to speak, oh. for, for any song and, and potentially... I... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. I think if it hasn't already happened, yeah, there are probably. popular artists using artificial intelligence in their workflow. Yeah, of course. I mean, it could be something as simple as mastering or mixing the final product. Mm. It's definitely in the synthesis of sounds, and we do really see today. I mean, yeah, more and more albums are being produced where AI is I sort mean, of marketed uh, as a part of the the product. And yeah. then, and then when we talk about algorithms in the music industry, I mean, like you, you can go into auto tuning and and all different kinds of uh, ways that we have used AI to perfect mm. the sound or cheat. Or cheat. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I would love to have an AI auto-tuner that helps <laughs> me to sing karaoke a bit better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. I think I think the kind of the, the next step what we're going to see very soon is actually to have these AI um, um, components sort of incorporated um, as plugins in, in the DAWs. I think that's already happening. Mm-hmm. Right? I think um, by there, there are already companies working on that. And recently we had that... Um, I think uh, the artist winning a painting com- competition mm-hmm. in the, the story was the New York Times, right? Winning a, a painting um, competition with a totally AI generated um, drawing. So, yeah. yeah, for sure. Awesome. Should we do the yes. proper introduction? Yeah, let's let's do that. And uh, very welcome here, Bob Sturm. Uh, finally, mm-hmm. <laughs> we've been trying to get you on the show for some time, but let's uh, let's make a short introduction at least and uh, you're an associate professor in KTH uh, focusing on AI signal processing music music, music. audio in general uh, I, I don't think we have spoken that much i think i met you at least once uh, speaking at your conference that you had at some point mm-hmm. i believe but i have a number of friends including called to me and others that uh, speaks very highly of you so um, i'm very happy to to have you to have you here my pleasure and um, then we have uh, rujin Yes. Huang, welcome. And and you're in uh, Hong, Kong, Hong Kong, right? You're calling yes. in from Hong Kong. Yes. What time is it there now? Past uh, midnight, 12.21 uh, a.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, How so, I roll these days. Oh. Yeah. And could you please introduce yourself and, and what do you do in Hong Kong? Yes, um, so I'm now, um, uh, um, so my background is ethnomusicology. I got my PhD in ethnomusicology in uh, 2019. Um, so now I'm based at the University of Hong Kong in mu- music department. Um, so yeah, uh, my, my research actually from my dissertation, my PhD years was, was very, very different from what I'm doing now. So it was actually on ancient Chinese sacrificial music and its contemporary revivals. And then I got into creative uh, music AI um, in late 2020. So, so my research since then has been focusing on um, specifically kind of thinking about the, the ethics and cultural politics of creative AI. So kind of, oh. uh, yeah, think, examining this, this whole thing from a humanistic um, 
perspective. And besides that, yes, I, I'm also um, a co-organizer in the AI Song Contest. And you've been collaborating on research right now, right? Yes, for since 2020. <laughs> yes. I have a project, the ERC yeah. Consolidator Grants, for a project called Mosaic, Music at the Frontiers of Artificial Creati- Intelligence and Creativity. And uh, at the first parts of that project started in 2020 with an advertisement for postdocs. And I got a variety of uh, excellent applications, including Rujing. And uh, she was top choice. I said, come join me in Stockholm. And she came from uh, after completing her PhD at Harvard. And it was right during the pandemic, too. So we didn't really meet each other in person <laughs> until several months after she had arrived. Uh, could you even travel to Stockholm? Where did you start your, your, your position, you know, remote, so to speak? I think December 2020 That's is, right. is yeah. when I arrived oh, yeah. in Stockholm. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was a strange uh, yeah. time because I didn't really see many people in Stockholm. <laughs> it was kind of a lockdown. But then by February, it was it was Simla season. We were uh, <laughs> meeting each other in person and working on some very interesting questions around uh, artificial intelligence involved in in uh, traditional music. Yeah. and in tradition, and looking at the value systems at play within traditional music and how artificial intelligence sort of short circuits these things. So we wrote a, a paper together about authenticity and, and the aura of, uh, of music when artificial intelligence is involved. And since that time, we've expanded to looking at um, ethics and, and different philo- philosophical frameworks, not only in the West, but also the East, of how... Um, researchers and, and users and consumers perceive the uh, involvement of machines in products of art. Mm-hmm. And so that's... that's so, and of course, this is so to the point 2022 when we have the whole Dali and everything and everybody's questioning is this art and who is owning the art and how, how will this affect the art community? And now we talk about the music community. So it's mm-hmm. right on point for 2022, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we, we should add a topic here about the ethics of generative AI, I guess, in general here and speak much yeah, more. About I, I would really like to have uh, some, some of the essence of, of these papers, how you know how you can see that. And I, I find it extremely interesting when you go traditional culture or like folk music and stuff like that. And really just like you go to the other side of the spectrum, you're not, you're not going to a high tech community and see how AI affects that. But how do we, how do we interpret that in this sort of very authentic mm-hmm. arena? Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. And so, perhaps we, before we move into to the really interesting questions, or this is an interesting yeah, this one is as well, but perhaps you can give a short introduction to your background as well, um, Bob. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah. Your background on coming to this kind of profession. Yes, yes. I've uh, since 2018, I've been in, in Stockholm yes. and joined KTH. <coughs> but before then, I've been in Europe since 2009. I started a postdoc in France where I was doing mm-hmm. music signal processing. Did that for 10 months and then moved to Denmark over University oh. of Copenhagen for five years where I taught in a media arts and technology program, let's say, and started to develop an appreciation for machine learning before yeah. that time. I had specialized in electrical engineering, signal processing, right. physics, uh, computer music composition. And then um, after 
Denmark, I got a position at Queen Mary, the Center for Digital Music, where I became an assistant professor in digital What media there. That was 2015. 15. And so moved to London. And yeah. London was great. Yeah. Uh, being an academic in the UK, not yeah. so much. <laughs> and ever since we had uh, experienced... Well, well, uh, what's the just, problem with it? It's too close to the American way of doing things, let's say. Oh. It's the work-life balance it's the, um, the heart, very harsh capitalism, the economic system there. After experiencing Denmark, we were like, look, we need to get back to Scandinavia as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah, And so this position in, in, in uh, KTH came up, and so I jumped at that. And so since that time, I've almost forgotten about physics. <laughs> Signal processing has been replaced by machine learning research. Yes. What do you think about that? I mean, I know some friends, you know, into control theory and these kind of things and it's getting increasingly replaced by machine learning they some people hate it uh, some people adapt it and like it uh, what's your thoughts about that the fundamentals are always important mm. i mean you, you have to learn we understand. see yeah. we see things being reinvented in computer science that have been around for a long time in signal right. processing yeah. and that's that's refreshing yeah. say but there are uh, where machine learning really kicks is when there's data yeah and in many Problem for many problems, it's data poor, and you need to rely on expert knowledge. You need to rely on these um, ways to get your system up and running quickly without having to learn everything from the from the start, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where these fundamental principles from signal processing or operation uh, control theory, mm -hmm. uh, even you know probability theory, come yeah. in and help. Yeah. So learning the fundamentals and understanding them can benefit a lot in machine learning and AI. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, as well. and when I'm uh, current sort of pursuit of mine and research is looking at the internal mechanisms of these machine learning models. Who knows all the data that they've been trained on? You know, a million tracks, thirty-second tracks of music, mm. and you've got matrices, you know, with that are embedded in this convolutional neural network. But how can you interpret them? Mm. And you can use basic tools of signal processing to look at them in the frequency domain and sort of understand what they're sensitive to and mm. these properties. So I'm finding that the signal processing knowledge very useful. Right, right, right. Oh, I can see that. And perhaps we should just move also over to reading. And, and what your, what's your current? I mean, you did your PhD as well, and uh, you did a postdoc as well with Bob as well. Uh, what's the, the current focus for, for you? So yeah, I'm kind of um, right now. So yes, PhD uh, working on the contemporary revivals of ancient Chinese ritual music, and then the first postdoc getting into um, cultural politics of AI. So kind of really the, on two ends of mm. time, I would say. Uh, and then now, so at Hong Kong, I'm essentially multitasking. I'm um, I'm <laughs> I'm teaching a class actually on, on music business right now, um, and research wise, yes, kind of going at the same time with the uh, the AI path and also the the um, Chinese sacrificial music one, which I will develop, and I'm, um, which is my dissertation into a book. But most of the paper, uh, new paper research projects are actually AI related. And the, the latest project I'm working on is actually um, getting more into the questions of um, labor, uh, labor theory, and kind of thinking about artistic labor um, in the age of AI, right? So kind of also the, the issues of musical talent, um, virtuosity, uh, skill, right? Kind of all these notions, um, the meanings are shifting now that AI is in the picture. 
let me see if I understand this correctly. So you said labor theory, is that basically how AI and machines will influence the labor market in some way? Or, or what do you mean? Kind of how you, right. So I, I guess how how you understand, um, how we can understand the, the, the concept of musical work, right? Mm-hmm. If, if that uh, makes sense, right? So, you know, now that you you have so many one-click options, um, you know, via Ivar or Boomi to create a song, mm-hmm. right? So, so mm-hmm. now... What does skill mean? Uh, what does musical skill yes. and, and, and right mean uh, in a music creator or in a musician? Right, uh, when you can do the one-click um, solution and sell your song, being identified as the artist mm. on Apple Music, that kind of creates a lot of interesting questions about yeah, um, kind of authorship and and uh, virtuosity um, in yeah. creative work. What does skill mean? Skill. Yeah. What does skill yes. mean? What does skill mean? So that's kind of the question I'm asking yes. too right now. When, Do you have um, an answer yet? Um, so I think there's what's happening now in the musical uh, world is is actually, so I gave a, re, a short, I recently gave a very a short talk about this too, kind of the process of de-skilling. I think AI at least in part is causing huh? de-skilling, right? Yes. So, and which is, uh, in the art world, I think the art world has actually um, gone through this. Um, so there was a lot of kind of writings um, in art uh, history and art criticism about how, um, you know, you, you transform uh, from the artisanal studio to uh, the artisanal uh, workshop to the artist studio, right? Where a lot of this traditional skills associated with the master musician are now kind of shedded um, and kind of redistributed among different uh, experts, um, so now what the artist needs to do is actually a much more, uh, a much smaller set of skills than the traditional kind of uh, um, artisan um, in that sense. So I think in, in the music world right now, you essentially have a, a very different network of uh, music makers, right? Mm-hmm. So for instance, in the AI song contest, we have all these technologists, right? The AI yes. scientists and developers who's never written a song before, right? Because right. this writing a song was traditionally not, their job and not kind of in that arena. So, but now with AI, you kind of you suddenly you see a very right, a very different picture of um, of so who is in, c- involved. Can you say in that uh, AI is democratizing uh, music creation in some way? Or yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that because that's exactly the the title of my paper. It was uh, yeah, it's it's question is is democratizing music and a question mark, and kind of also looking into this this. Uh, notion of democratization, which is, yeah, all of this is kind of uh, at the moment what I'm thinking about and writing about. So it looks like you were yeah. sh- shaking your head, Bob, on, on this question. Yeah, the, the, using the term <laughs> democratizing, technology democratizes. Yeah. It's, I think it's difficult to place a political theory on technology. I think it's accessibility or it may be removing boundaries to markets or to listeners but it's there's no voting you know in oh, terms okay. of so it's a term democratizing so we are using is, quite uh, nonchalantly different terms and we are sometimes forgetting that when we say democratizing uh, that has a very deep uh, political meaning in yeah. terms of uh, what is a democracy and what is just uh, in, yeah. in this sense. I mean, in a and, sense. And, 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 but we have used that word in so many different aspects now, so it's almost lost its fundamental f- 
meaning, uh-huh. semantic, right? And you're now flipping it. Is it really democratizing yeah. a good word or is it better words here that is socializing? Socializing, accessibility, right, right. And stuff yeah. like that. Okay. So, right. so you, so you, you know, you're pointing out the semantics. Different. Yeah. Sorry, what did you say, Regine? Right. No, I was just saying that I think there's still a difference to be made before uh, between, you know, uh, now that everyone can have different, uh, more platforms to be um, creative with and you know more people can now yes make music uh between that and the trope of everyone is now an artist right i think i think that's there's still um a difference there to be made and so yes the the question of right what does it mean uh, when we say that ai is democratizing art and music because that's actually how i started this project when i was just doing some random google search about you know kind of stories and news about uh creative ai democratization is the word that just keeps mm-hmm. popping up it's yeah. that number one market uh, yeah. marketing slogan for it's, all the uh, startups actually yeah i mean at least you know myself it, it's an interesting thing here we have so many people on the podcast and it seems to be an unproportional number of people that have a passion for both music and, and technology i'm not sure really why i feel a bit um left out because i, I really can't sing or i can't play an instrument really well or create music. But I know you, Henry, can. Goran is an expert in this. We have other people like uh, Robin Luciani. They are both masters in both technology and music. And and for me, I'm looking forward to the time when I can use AI to at least start to produce stuff and be creative in music as well. Mm-hmm. And at least it's it's something that I think is a positive thing for me personally, at least, and I think potentially for a lot of people in society. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I mean, it's it's nice if you can explore other modes of expression, right? Is, right? Yes. And and I don't think anyone should be. Uh, and you can do that without technology, in a sense, right? No, I, I tried, a, but I failed. A rubber band, put it across a tissue yeah. box that's empty, and yeah. there you have a, a nice uh, I can't you know, little string instrument. You know? So how can I? But, but maybe, uh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sorry, what did you say? I was saying a, a theremin. Yeah, there. Don't have to yeah, touch it. Right. But I, I find that really, really interesting. And it goes all the way down to who's the artist and, and what is an artist. Uh, because sometimes I, I, I believe you have, um, in order to have something sound good on a piano or a guitar, you need to have a certain level of uh, virtuosity or skill, right? To, to make, to actually, you have a music in your head and you actually have a beautiful song in your head, but you don't really have the skills to express it. But with the right technology and tools, someone who has the creativity of this tune as a composer, but not the skill to make it happen in, in, in a physical piano or something mm-hmm. like that. I, I think that's a huge uh, opportunity for, for, you know, and, and uh, express an expression and artistry mm-hmm. that creates new artists that sort of felt the sort of, yeah, burden. Yeah, one Difficulty too is to realize that it's not the end song; it's the product. It's not. It's not writing that finished song or or having mastered to play that song on the piano and sing at the same time, but it's the process of working mm. towards that that you start to uh, it, learn about yourself, your body, the instrument itself, the worlds, how you respond to things. It's a journey. It's not just that end product. It's the piece and will that be different with AI or the same because it's a process again I think parts are short-circuited it's like solving a crossword by using Google search on the 
crossword clues, right? Going through the process of elimination and then turning the meaning of the words over in your mind. Yep. Right? There's some aspect of that people find satisfying. Yep. Right? I find when I write music, it's solving problems. Mm. And sometimes it's really frustrating and I have, I hate it. <laughs> I find it painful. And I love to use tools like Folk RNN or Music Transformer to give me options to start from because then it's like I get going faster and, and it I opens go up your further. mind. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. And so the, I find them, and this goes back to your question earlier about are these tools or are these partners? I find them to be partners in the sense that if they would be gone, if they'd be erased from the internet, I'd be at a loss. Mm. They contribute that much to my music, I feel. Uh, so they, they give you inspiration in your creative process. They, get, they, they give you cues in the pre- creative process that you would be, that is a tool doesn't give you cues in this sense. Yeah, I would say they don't give me inspiration. They give me gasoline. They give me oil. Yeah, okay. To better. move faster, to make the, the journey smoother. Mm. I like that. And I go to places I would never have considered before. And this is another thing I really enjoy about um, AI. I, I enjoy several things about AI involved in the music process. But when they make mistakes and when they do weird things, that's oftentimes musically right. Mm. Or it's musically interesting. I don't want to create a system that generates the best Irish-sounding jigs and reels. Because we already have lots of those. I want to find tunes that are weird and quirky, that that would never be considered an Irish tradition, but can be kind of brought and kind of challenge the the patterns that exist in Irish traditional music. And perhaps be able to, to create more music on the long tail, so to speak, that normal people don't have. Mm. the time otherwise to create because it's not the audience not, is sufficient for it yeah. I, I know you're reading that it's very late in your time it's after midnight already and, and you have to leave soon so i would love to north i'm actually i'm surprisingly awake so <laughs> north <laughs> um, thanks for that but let's uh, i would love to to just focus on, on some of your you know favorite research questions as well and uh, how would you phrase it? Is it ethics of generative AI? Is that a good phrasing? Or what would be your like passion right now? Mm, um, so, yeah, I think uh, based on so different paper, different um, research project, we are focusing on different sets of questions. Um, you know, for instance, in, in and I think I actually find all of them um, really interesting. So I probably can't rank um, an mm. order of kind of... Um, uh, interest um, among them, but uh, for instance, I, I found at least uh, the Ismir paper that we did, uh, we put together uh, with also with Bob in 2021. I found that to be a really fun um, experiment, actually. So it was um, uh, Bob mentioned that um, briefly before thinking about how Oriental kind of East Eastern East Asian philosophy can inspire our thinking about um, ethical music AI, which was. Yeah, it's just it found, it's something that I would have never just come to think of, right? Um, before joining this research team, and I remember that idea just came out of a small chat between me and Bob. You know, thinking about what we should do next, and just you know, ideas came out of these uh, very casual conversations. So, and I think that was actually from another Google search when I was just looking at news, and I realized, oh, there's this really interesting article uh, titled "How Confucianism Could." put fears about artificial intelligence to bed. I was like, huh, very interesting. So so then 
that's kind of how we went down this route because I do have a little bit of a background in uh, classical Chinese philosophy. I did. Uh, mm-hmm. I used to uh, t- uh, be the teaching uh, fellow of uh, this huge uh, class at Harvard, which is the number three most popular class at Harvard. That's essentially um, on classical Chinese music uh, philosophy. So uh, classical Chinese philosophy, not music. That's more specific. But that class has 600, over 600 students every semester. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I was part of that team. So we kind of went through all the different schools of Chinese philosophy. Um, yeah, in a very early times. Oh, sorry, so I, essentially... Yeah. Can you just yeah. elaborate? How, I mean, it's, it's very interesting, I think. Philosophy is also a passion of mine. I think it's super interesting. But So I'm hearing a bit that, you know, you're looking into how the Chinese philosophy, Confucianism, etc., is influencing music creation, I guess, in some way. Or AI. Or is AI connected in some way? Or how is that connection between music, Chinese philosophy, and AI uh, really working? So for this uh, specific paper that I'm talking about, we were were specifically looking at um, the ethical principles uh, that were outlined in in one of these uh, IEEE documents. I think it's called Ethically Aligned Design. So Mm -hmm. uh, in this document, it's outlined kind of there are eight ethical principles, right, for any kind of creation of um, uh, ethical AI and automatic systems. So it's like human rights, well-being, misuse, accountability, so all these concepts. So kind of the way we went with this was kind of thinking about these concepts, but now considering uh, a different philosophical framework and then see how they can potentially apply in the music AI uh, field. So it's very specific and it was a very fun exercise. You know, I yeah, I think... Yeah, it was just a fun thinking experiment for me too. Um. So I'm, I'm, I'm struggling a bit here to, to, to try to nail down the question, you know, how can how to, uh, yeah. Chinese philosophy influence music creation mm-hmm. or AI music creation? No, it, it, okay. no. Uh, more broadly speaking. One example I can give support. Sorry, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> more broadly speaking, it's the involvement of technology. Yeah. And and how you see something that's more with ha- more agency than a tool than a guitar pedal, let's say, that has it's rising to the uh, ranks of author, right? And we see ethically aligned design version 2.0 that's promoted by the IEEE of how to design systems and the ways to think to minimize harm, to mm-hmm. maximize benefits, mm-hmm. to you know increase well-being to. Uh, minimize chance of misuse, et cetera. And we wanted to see how that translates to East Asian contexts. Mm. And is there a similar kind of unsettled feeling about involving technology in these pursuits right. in, okay. in uh, East Asia? So just to get, uh, if I understand my angle here, I mean, like ethics is highly connected to a culture, community, uh, to, to context. So what is considered ethical in Sweden might not be considered ethical in another part of the world and vice versa. It's okay. connected to values. Values. So the value systems. Yeah. So now you're talking about AI ethics as a, the models and, and the, the, the eight dimensions that you explained. And now you put that towards, for instance, Confucianism values and mm-hmm. value system. Mm-hmm. And and you see how right. do so we get no. to somewhere else than... Yes. Go ahead, Richie. No, it's just, I just, you know, thought of maybe one, one or two specific examples, right? So there is a, a classical ancient uh, philosopher called uh, Mozi, and he's um, kind of the creator of the Mohism school of philosophy, which is not as known, I think, these days. Um, 
to at least uh, the people in the West. But yeah, he has this one entire chapter in his book, which is called Condemnation of Musical Performances. So his whole point is that, you know, he, he was actually arguing against extravagant uh, musical performances that was wasteful. So we kind of went from there and, and, and kind of think about the very energy consuming large neural networks, right? And then kind of then going into, there, there's already discussion about how um, uh, with streaming and AI that the kind of the carbon uh, footprint of, of music creation has actually increased, right? So kind of thinking there about the environment and eco-musicology a little bit. And then, yeah, then there is also the question of excess, right? Of, of overproduction, of abundance, um, you know, right? Is, is it better to keep creating, producing, or is it also a time to think about the reduction rather than the production? Of music, um, um, so yeah, some of these questions, and that could be related to, for instance, Laozi, the philosopher, uh, who is a founding figure of Taoism, who actually talks a lot about kind of the negative, the the non-action, the kind of the empty, rather the reducing, rather than the addition. So there's a lot of this, and lastly, the question of personhood, right? So this is not specifically about music, but just in terms of what is a person is ai a member of our society mm. or is ai right a tool or you know what's the subjectivity of ai and this actually i think is very helpful to kind of bring in some of these um asians uh philosophy which has a very different argument about what makes or what makes an kind of actor qualify as a human right so confucianism ha has a very different theory about right what makes a human so as long in, in this case actually ai in the confucian sense ai can uh be considered a human and a member of the society once it fulfills a certain um, society societal roles because it's a very role-based um, understanding of personhood. So, right, kind of a lot of these fundamental um, concepts yeah, we're, I, we're trying to read. And I, I, I see what this is going because we, we, we came into the topic when we had other professors here who has worked in Japan, for instance, and how come there is such an... Um, acceptance of robots in society uh, and and how can that be and and you can you yeah, can trace it back to confucianism and or or you know an item everything is everything is has a spirit a stone has a spirit or yeah. you can trace it back to how confucianism now plays what is the person it's the role and all of a sudden the robot yeah. can take a role so that's for it's a person which is completely yeah, different to western philosophy mm -hmm. i guess mm -hmm. Right. And in Taoism, it will be qi, right? It will be the vital energy. Everything has energy. Exactly. Yeah, in Shintoism, right? In Japan. So there's spirit. And in Taoism, there's different level of vital energy that is present um, in, in all the um, uh, life or lifeless, so-called lifeless um, but, objects. But, but is it a fair assumption or theory, hypothesis, that uh, for uh, cultures that are coming from these types of philosophies, they will have a much easier time to embrace robotics or or or, or that it will be more pervasive faster uh, the use of ai in those mm -hmm. cultures than in it would be more accepted more accepted easier mm -hmm. that, that is almost a proven already i guess bob yeah. and i we, we had this um, book chapter in which uh, which just came out recently uh, uh with also um another collaborator in which we interviewed uh, a lot of um the practitioners of um creative ai in asia and actually yeah when we spoke to the uh the japanese um uh scholar, ishiguro -san. right right and so yes there is i think apparently a really much higher acceptance of 
of robots um, as a member of the society. And if you look at the AI principles in Japan, actually there is a, a clause, so it, which you don't see in other kind of Western AI ethical principles. So in Japan, there's a principle that basically kind of says how AI can become a quasi-member or a member of society. That's actually in their um, document. And in Chinese, the Beijing AI principle, there is a, um, one of the key principles is actually the concept of harmony, right? When AI, uh, how can AI harmonize the society and harmony comes from, it's, it's one of the core confusion um, concepts too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Professor Ishiguro-san, who we interviewed for this uh, chapter, he's the one that has developed humanoid robots look like himself. Really? In addition to others. I'm sure you've seen this in the news. Is it the and Honda robot thing or is it the... No, no, it actually looks like him. Oh. It's very lifelike. Interesting. And uh, he was he was uh, gracious enough to give me an hour of his time to, to interview him. And he's worked on robots that um, perform Buddhist rites. So in the temple, the robot is reciting the chant. Really? And I, I asked him, aren't people offended by this? Yeah. Because if you do this in a, like a Catholic church, it would be a sacrilegious. It would be a right. cheapening of the ritual. Mm-hmm. He says, no, that the monks, they don't, they like and appreciate, they embrace anything that focuses the message on, on Buddhism. Hmm. And these, this robot does that. Would you say that in the Eastern Asian society, uh, they are a bit more open-minded and forward Minded even in into matters like this. Mm, I'm not sure, Eugene. I think Japan is a very special case. You know, I, I wouldn't <laughs> generalize actually much beyond that because you haven't seen that, for instance, in in China in the Chinese world. Um, and with Japan, Japan is a society that's a lot about. Um, is I think has a very interesting dynamics between change and non-change, right? About preserving the tradition continuity, heritage, and then about kind of radical um, um, technological developments. You know, you see them kind of embracing both at the same time. Um, and and I do think that um, idea of everything having kind of a life and spirit yeah. uh, is a huge part of um, of how, right, kind of the ro- robot agents are, are more accepted. And because I see that ro- robots are now being a huge part of kind of elderly care in Japan. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the robots actually helping uh, kind of being the household carer of um, a lot of the elderly in japan which hasn't happened um in china and I, it's you in china right you're starting to see um kind of virtual artists musicians you know ai so it's starting to happen a lot and become much more visible and i, I kind of see 50 50 of love and hate um so yeah i wouldn't say that um it's it would be the same story in other parts of but, East Asia at least. But 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 I find this conversation is super interesting, but also very hard, because if I only have really experience with West, Western culture and values, uh, I can try to, with my understanding, reflect on how I think they understand it, uh, like in China or in Japan. But I still have, it's hard to take the real empathic listening and really putting myself in, in someone else's shoes mm-hmm. because I don't have the value system. Mm-hmm. So I really literally need to study the value system deeply mm-hmm. as a way to come back to the question from another angle. Is, yeah. is that fair? Yeah, of course. And that's why we interviewed several practitioners and, and researchers in yeah. East Asia to yeah. get these perspectives in a variety mm-hmm. of different countries. It wasn't just Japan and China, Korea, Thailand. Right, right, right. Thailand. 
but, and the Thailand um, uh, scholar, the Thai scholar we, we interviewed has a really interesting book about Buddhism and how Buddhism can inform our thinking about AI ethics too. It's an interesting book. That's the thing that I've found research. Um, I'm in the computer science department. Yeah. The project I'm running um, is an ERC project that's funded from a panel that is not computer science, it's humanities. Oh, really? And the majority of work that we're doing is on sort of the uh, outside of computer science looking in, in a sense. We're not, I haven't promised work packages on algorithms and data sets, et cetera. But we are trying to involve practitioners, um, experts outside our domain to reflect on the challenges that this technology could bring and brings now. Yeah. And the conversation is constant. You have to keep talking and talking and talking. It's not like an engineering problem where the solution is done and that's how you solve the problem. This ethical reflection requires revisiting and further reading and thinking again, okay, maybe this particular statement isn't true anymore. Yeah. And it's this constant back and forth uh, that we have to have this conversation. And it is difficult because it's sort of longitudinal. Mm. You have to keep having it. Um, I guess it's similar to, to what you speak about a lot, Henrik, which is, uh, you know, having AI being adopted in, in business in some way is much more than technological development. Um, and it is much more about also culture development. Culture, organization, yeah. team topologies, values of the company. Right. And and not until you get to those roots of what, what, what becomes, if you want to adopt AI at scale. Uh, simply put, the way we have done it in the analog way and uh, what is efficient organization in the past for a stable process, for instance, and now we're going to have a very adaptive process and we're going to add mm -hmm. data and algorithms. It's a completely different uh, value system. And therefore, the organizational patterns, the practices are anti-patterns, the old patterns are anti-patterns when you try to go this way. And you need to break that. It, it, it's, down, it's, it's like down to the real quanta of, of the being of the company. Mm. And, and I find it, uh, you know, so, so to address this topic, you know, if I take it to business, is actually uh, addressing the value system, you know, how do we make money? Mm -hmm. And it, it, a simple example, right? Uh, in, in business, we have gone down a path from Adam Smith to sort of um, the Freedmans and, and all that. And we, and we, and we came to the, the core conclusion that the purpose of a corporation is shareholder value. And now somewhere in the 60s, 70s, Peter Drucker says, well, actually that's not true. That's a result. The core only purpose of any corporation or any business is to create value for their customers. And if you do that well, then you can have results that will give you shareholder value. So basically by, by that simple, Adam Smith put us on, on a path here that, that sort of, uh, that, that leads down a path that you need to, the whole value system is wrong. Mm -hmm. And now we have built very successful businesses ar around that. When, when, uh, when the economies are stable, when the, what you're producing as a product is fairly stable and you, you, you maximize efficiency to maximize shareholder value. And now we get to a, to a state of complete innovation pressure, complete innovation, um, ac uh, accelerating innovation where you constantly need to adapt to the marketplace and therefore you constantly need to adapt to the what is value that uh -huh. the customer is seeking and therefore you need to have a completely different 
mindset. And 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 it, this is on a on a huge macro level. If we zoom all the way out, I get what you are saying here. Yeah. If we want to talk about ethics, and if we want to talk about these things, oof, we need to really zoom out of our. Um, dogma and value systems of one culture and see this on a much broader perspective like you are doing now. I, I'm, I'm getting a little bit blown away when I'm starting to try to articulate what I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do you see what I'm... Absolutely. And the, the, uh, the longer I've been a member, the longer I've been a member of academia, the more I start to realize it's not very much, it's not very different from business no, industry. Not. We still are treat. adapting quickly to the customers, whether they're students or they're uh, people that hire the students. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in search of money, mm-hmm. of course. Yes. We're in search of results in terms of patents and publications. And yeah. You have your metrics. Absolutely. KPIs, all of that. <laughs> we just don't call them that. Exactly. And we're no less free of considerations of ethics. No. We no. still have to consider them. So we may not be directly in the game of making profits for shareholders, but we do have shareholders in the sense of people that run the universities that have degrees from that university depend on the, you know, that, that name. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, should we try before? I know that time is running out for you soon, Rishing, but, but the, if we can, if you can keep you on for a short time more, um, I'm thinking about the question, um, that is more like, okay, if we, th- if we think about generative AI in general, of course, music creation is your speciality and, uh, and that's super interesting. But th- we can also think about all the things that happened just in recent year or last years with, of course, uh, GPT and DALI and, uh, and, and now Chatbot and whatnot. And, and it seems like we, we are seeing the, the whole generative AI being able to create from a single prompt or a question in all type of modalities when it comes to text, images, and I guess music is just next to the line in some ways, you know, just prompting in some way and you can get your own song being generated. And, and uh, I'm sure that's coming along very shortly. Well, it's already there. I it's mean, ju- jukebox. All right. It sounds like it's on an AM radio. And that's the NVIDIA jukebox thing or, or which? Uh, OpenAI. Ah, okay. OpenAI. So OpenAI is behind ChatGPT and they also have jukebox. Jukebox, right. yeah. yeah. Can jukebox you just elaborate how that does that work? I don't, I don't know. I just but know. How, it, but it, how do you use it? Can it basically prompt it to generate things, or yeah, you can. You can. Well, uh, it's not. A v- well, there are models to work with online. I've never worked with them. You, it's t- more. Uh, it takes more work to get them to yeah. to operate than ChatGPT, which is already there, yeah. Yeah. or Hugging Face, yeah. and some Stable Diffusion. Yeah. But you can say Frank Sinatra plus um, Eminem. Yeah. You can give uh, t- maybe a song of a title or a style. And it generates tracks that do have, that sound like Frank Sinatra or what have you. Long term, the music doesn't really hold together, but it's it's getting there. And it is getting there. And I guess these are just, you know, the, the first kind of initial attempts that you have in, in having really powerful generative AI in different ways. So I guess one question perhaps to you, Rushing, would be what kind of ethical challenges do you see when we get these kind of increasingly powerful generative models for songs or images or text or whatnot. Can, can you see any upcoming ethical challenges that we need to look into? For sure. I think um, 
there's certainly more than one, I think, issue. And, and this is one of the, uh, I think, the um, problems or questions that has already generated a lot of discussion, I think, is right that, that question of copyright, of course, right, of, yes. of ownership, right, of, of having um, a huge uh, training data set involving, right, like a million songs uh, or not. And, right, how, how do you then credit those musicians whose songs are used in um, in the training process, uh, and, and it also just, actually, if we, um, if we just linger on that a, a short while, you know, there is a current lawsuit mm-hmm. going on against Microsoft because of their Copilot thing, which can generate code, and that code that the model mm-hmm. is in itself is looking through oh, yeah. all the code that we have in GitHub. Um, potentially, then a lot of the material on GitHub is is licensed and copyrighted but it can still be inspired in some way by looking at that code and then generating something that, you know, it's not a copy of it, but it's inspired from it. I guess you can argue that the human could in principle do the same. It could look through all the code and then while, you know, being presented with a problem, do something that's inspired by manually looking through all the repos in, in GitHub. It's not going to work practically, but still could. Do you do you see how how should we tangle that? Is is AI more of an copyright infringement problem than humans uh, having to look through all the songs or all the text or all the images or all the code repos? Is do we need additional copyright regulation when it comes to generative AI? So, so I think, uh, firstly, a lot of the issues, uh, sort of copyright infringement issues we are now encountering are not new, but they're brought to a new scale by yes, AI. So right. I think a lot of the same copyright issues we already encountered with sampling, right, with all these historical, right, kind of technological advances in the music industry. There's a lot of the same questions, but now it's brought to a new height um, yeah. because of the data, the scale of things involved on a, a totally different level. So I do think there has to, I think that the copyright folks, I think there's a lot of um, already meetings about how um, the copyright board, I think in the US, for instance, you know, they're definitely having conversations on on um, what is the system that has to be um, now invented or you know i think with within the music industry we already see that you know think that the regulations are always changing already right with or without ai um um with the uh, music modernization act um i think because i'm teaching music business which i why i i even am aware of this there's you know recently also a change to how um we get publisher clearance of of um of songs, so so there's constantly discussions about how to make the system more efficient. So I think there's definitely um, suggestions on how, how on coming up with some kind of a centralized system of um, crediting um, these uh, songs that are being used um, in training. But there's also kind of another more radical solution. I think that I once read a book, which I actually don't remember the name, but the concept's interesting. It's essentially talking about music. The title, I think, is Music as Water. So the concept is kind of, what about we start paying for music like we pay our uh, electricity bills or phone mm-hmm. bills, right? Mm-hmm. So kind of, it's it's a part of a life, but then not really getting into, it's kind of a totally different um, way of thinking about um rights, ownership, and music. So, yes, I, I guess the answer is I do think there, there has to be uh, some changes in the in the law and regulation. And just one last note on uh, traditional music and copyright, because this um, actually already came up. You know, Bob is working so much with the traditional material, right, the Irish traditional music. And a lot of that 
material is in the public domain, right? And there's actually an ethnomusicologist called um, Anthony Seeger who gave this uh, talk in uh, 2003. And and what he was talking about, the title is called um, I Found It, But How Can I Use It? Uh, Dealing with um, the ethical and legal constraints of information access. So what he was talking about there is that when uh, the public domain was created for the traditional materials, the traditional music, was it does it mean that you know that was intended to be used in the way that it's being used right now, right? In a way, is AI now causing some kind of convenient exploitation of the public domain material? Yeah. Do we now need to protect the public domain? So yeah, there are all kinds of conversations happening. Cool. Um, so copyright and the legislation around that is is one challenge, I guess, from a legal or ethical point of view. Uh, what other type of challenges do you potentially see when it comes to generative AI? So I think one, so the, the other, I guess, related, I guess not, not entirely um, the same, it's quite different. It would be the question of um, authorship and, and ownership, right? Yeah, so ownership, um, yeah. I recently, yeah, I recently at the, um, the licensing agreement of, uh, Boomi and also Iva, which is two of the more popular um, commercially available um, AI generating platforms for music. And so essentially what you can do these days um, is, so if you don't pay on Boomi, then you need to credit AI as, uh-huh. as um, Interesting. creator in your song. But now if you pay for a premium pl- uh, plan, you now no longer are obliged to um, credit AI. You can essentially say, I created the song 100% without, you know, any legal responsibility. Do, do you think that's correct from an ethical point of view to be able to pay in that way? Or are you so just- I was thinking about this. Yes. So, so yeah, I was thinking about this and it's interesting that I happen to be teaching music business at the moment and Hong Kong U. And so we were thinking about, okay, a very similar comparison here is actually with the work for hire uh, deal, right? So when you sign a work for hire uh, contract is essentially what you are doing. You are paying right. the artist who actually makes the song. Right. So, and and now that you can claim you have your own song. So it's already actually exists there in the industry. So, and now, so you have bought yeah, it from the AI it. in some way, and therefore you have the ownership in some way, right? Right, except that, right, except that AI cannot speak and cannot, um, you know, <laughs> yes. the creator cannot sign the, the contract. So, yeah, yeah, it's a bit different. But but yeah, I was looking at the, the licensing agreement. I found it really interesting that you just pay more than you know you, you own and you can claim that you created and you can generate uh, income from it. Um, Do you know, co- you know Being identified as the artist. No so, of it, but I don't know in detail. So, so elaborate a little bit. What is Boomi? This is my favorite um, <laughs> AI application business to hate on. <laughs> <laughs> I find it a parasitic system. Uh, oh, so okay. it aims to be the Twitter of music or something. I, I'm not sure that's what that's what the founder has said. Mm-hmm. You pay uh, as a subscriber to the service and uh, a certain amount, and you click a button that says create my song now. And then you can say, okay, I like that song. And then Boomi will then send that song out to 40 different streaming platforms to be posted as a new song by some artist. And then you're paid by click and Boomi gets some amount. Oh, and so really? something like... 10 million tracks have been composed by Boomi and sent out into the world to, to find place in, you know, yoga playlist 40,802 or something. So it's quite oh. a strange. And you go, 
music business. Yeah, I was just gonna add there. <coughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, please. Ruching, please. Ruching. I know. I was just gonna add there because yeah, what what just to add to the uh, the one billion whatever the number is. If you look at you go to Boomi's website. Uh, just drag all the way down. There's actually a live calculation of the number of songs created by Boomi users. And at the moment, I'm opening the website, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, Boomi users have created around 10.61% of the world's recorded music. Really? So that's just a Whoa. pretty astounding. Yeah, now, and now we get the whole, uh, uh, what is all, should we continue producing or should we stop producing? As Human. a fun Oh, I mean, I mean, like the, the whole footprint, the whole, uh, you were highlighting this before, Rujing, uh, looking into how um, Eastern yeah. philosophies sometimes yeah. talk more about we should do less, we should have more emptiness. It it, it brings home right. a point, and right? Even within in the West, there is Moray Schaefer, which is uh, one of the early kind of uh, ecomusicologists um, uh, thinking about music of the environment. And she was writing, so this is uh, Moray Schaefer again. So he was writing about um, positive silence and exactly calling for the reduction and not the production. Exactly, reduction. So, not yeah. Mm. But it becomes so, but but what are these 10% of the, are these sort of the yoga playlist or the, 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 the uh, casual lounge playlist and, and, and uh, for forever? Like what, what type of music is it that boomies that, you know, can we, can we find it in the normal categories or is it typically you sack? I've never found booming music in the wild. Hmm. That no, I know of. No, this, this is the interesting thing. You, you, it's a quite high number being stated here. But oh, where it's, do we? It's BS. I don't believe that yeah. number one bit. Okay. Yes. No, <laughs> it's probably just the number of songs, not the number of views or listens to a song. So it's probably in the long tail, you know, whatever catalog you have there. And yeah, and I think Boomi is still in the game of getting venture capital and yeah. funding and and all of that. Yeah. So it's it's hype. But I still the service itself yeah. is a ridiculous use of AI generated. But is it co-creation or is it really automated? This is not, it's a single button, one button click, <sighs> and there it is. You have your song. It's the one button. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, that, I, and that's I, where I think, you know, really happens with the AI song contest, which is the opposite of the one button is what we are going after. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That sounds great. I mean, I think we've said so many times in the podcast as well, and, and certainly my belief as well, that the best use of AI is together with humans. It's really about augmenting humans, not about replacing them. So, uh, yeah, that sounds like you're on the same page here, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, there are tasks that I would want a human to be in, such as defusing bombs <laughs> or demining a field, yeah. that it would make sense to have some sort of drone autonomous warfare. Autonomous warfare, that um, sounds questionable. That, you know, there uh, are particular jobs that are yeah, a part of the warfare. Menial. So I wouldn't discount the, I wouldn't say yeah, only only AI plus human or a transhumanist perspective, but I definitely think it has applications. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the nuance that there is cases where full automation is maybe good and yes. there are cases where maybe not so good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this is ethics, right? Yeah. Asking what is harmful, what is beneficial and why, how do we know? Mm. How can it be beneficial? How can it be harmful? And I guess a continuation of that question, and, and still speaking about ethical challenges of, of generative AI, is uh, the impact it will have on the job market uh, in some sense. Um, and I guess that's also if you 
also study or teach uh, music business. Um, what's your thought, Jing, about the impact it will have on the job market with so many inspiring you know, uh, musicians out there or artists out there? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, so um, for instance, what I know is a lot of the major record labels are now competing to invest in um, music AI startups mm-hmm. and see who wins, essentially. So there's definitely awareness that, you know, this is the the, the, the new world. And, um, you know, I think the reality is, yes, some musicians' jobs will be replaced. Um, and there will probably be uh, new jobs for right. um you know, for for some musicians. So I think I re- I watched a tech talk uh, um, at some point, and it was um, talking about how you know what kind of music will be replaced and what kind of music won't be irre- irreplaceable. Um, and I think in that tech talk, the, the arguments there is art music there and versus functional music. So functional music meaning maybe like the more you know advertisement like for a car ad, right? So these very in a way formulaic. Um, sounds that because you know i know the, the composer that's freaking out the most among my friends is actually yes the composer who produces all these kind of 20 second 30 second um segments of of um music for ads because that job is that's yeah, gone. It's, yeah. yeah it's kind of gone but yeah. at the same time you know i'm thinking about my favorite singer songwriter like an indie singer songwriter from time i don't think so you know i don't think that that is uh replaceable um because there's so much about that music that's you know, about the artist, about the humanity, about the personality, about like that singing of of tune even, right? You know, kind of in her very idiosyncratic ways. Um, but then I think the story also changes when AI, now the uh, record labels are producing kind of these AI artists, right? Which mm. comes with their personality, comes with their persona. So yeah, that that that's also changing there. But yeah, I, I, I do think it's just an inv- inevitable um, reality that yes, some some musicians are going to lose their job um, because of what they uh, unless they, they actually to start to adapt to the new reality and, and start to make the best use possible, I guess, of AI tools, yes. if we call it that. Right? Or, exactly, and the, the music industry is not kind of foreign to this, right? It's gone through all these different waves. If you look historically, mm-hmm. you know there has been. You know, when when GarageBand came up with with all these the, the new tools coming up of again the de-skilling question, right? So there's mm-hmm. some uh, some skills that all of a sudden became kind of useless, and now right musicians had to exactly adapt themselves um, mm-hmm. to the new reality. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Bob? I think this uh, points back to the values of the society in which these musicians exist. Um, you know, this uh, musicianship takes considerable time. And, and access to resources like a piano. A piano is very expensive. Yeah. It's a very complex instrument. It needs an environment in which it's going to be well-maintained. And um, for musicians to develop the uh, virtuosity necessary to perform some kinds of music on this instrument, there needs to be a value system in place in that society that would support them. Mm. And I remember being, uh, you know, I wanted to study music composition as mm. a kid. Mm. In college, let's say my dad says, "Well, you need to earn money. You're going to have to do something." So I said, "Okay, I'll do physics, and then I'll study music composition on the side." He, said, he was fine with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went to do my master's degree in, in computer music, which made him a little nervous, <laughs> but it ended up fine, right? So there is a a perspective in at least our society, in well, the society of the U.S. that 
a job is where you earn the money and there's other things you do, playing music, writing, poetry, whatever, they're hobbies. You're not right. going to make money. You shouldn't depend on that. Mm. And I think that's a real loss. It is, right? I, 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 think so. I think it can move in the other direction, actually, saying that you know we will have the... The, the normal type of jobs we will have in the future will be less of the necessities of the world because that will be created anyway and we have more automated solutions for that. And what humans then can move into doing freely if we potentially have also some kind of universal basic, basic income or something yeah. is perhaps more creative tasks mm-hmm. that they enjoy doing, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Yes. So, so, the, so on, on, on that scale... Um, I think we, we touched on, on this in similar discussions here, is that we would probably always want to work, you know, or, yes. or get busy. I, I don't think the human psyche takes complete emptiness not doing anything so well. Mm-hmm. Not the normal person anyway. But then what we feel, what we call a job and what the task is, and, and basically maybe it's a, it's not an, a task or a job that brings you the income because you have a universal base income, but it's something that is meaningful to you and your culture and your community mm-hmm. or something that is meaningful even to you as an individual. And that becomes your job. Mm-hmm. I, I completely see that uh, that is not implausible as a path forward if you think about where automation is going and, and, and how we want to. I hope, so. I hope so, but I think those benefits will really flow to the top Earners, you know, now that's that now we now we come to now we come to an, an, another topic, a, a favorite of ours, but I think we can put a spin on it mm-hmm. because we 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 have uh, touched upon and we call it and, and discuss if it exists and there is there an AI divide in the world, and now we have looked at this and, and many times and discussed this based on the you know top <laughs> top ten companies in the world getting more and more powerful and getting way way ahead. So it's completely a divide in how we can use AI. But if we if we now shift that story of the AI divide and we spin where you, that we have the top earners, we have the, uh, the, the top most successful company uh, companies or people, they can have an, a one type of lifestyle. And, you know, if you elaborate yeah. on this divide yeah. from your angle. I think it's not only AI. I think you can replace that with technology. Yeah, okay. and you can replace that with medicine and healthcare mm. and access to water and food and and fuel. I think it's the same. So I I do believe, you know, one thing uh, that surprised me is that landline telephones don't really exist in Africa. Mm. They totally no. skipped that. Yeah, they jumped. They and leapfrogged. It's mobile phones, cell yeah. phones. I know that. It's amazing. I mean, they they skipped that. So, and then you look at railways. In Europe, the number of railways versus, say, the United States or other places. And you look at the high-speed railway in Japan and these uh, moving people to places from place to place. So you do have big discrepancies, I think. And uh, if you look at normal tech companies, at least, uh, and uh, you can see that for, if you take music companies like Spotify, you know, and uh, whatever, YouTube and... Uh, it's not so a music company. It's a tech company. I know. I work there, you know, so I know. Still, a company that has, I think Daniel X's phrase is um, music in their heart, but technology in their mind or something. Uh, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but uh, it's still a core of, of their business, so to speak. Um, do you think there is an... I shouldn't use the AI divide part, but 
But you can see at least that some companies are really in, in the top elite in the Pareto distribution or this kind of power distribution that you have, that some companies are making most of the money and are, you know, going really well, but others are failing. Mm. Do you think that kind of trend with some company in the music industry that do focus on technology will continue to accelerate and others will die? Or do you think it rather will move to more uniform kind of distribution of the wealth of these companies? Yeah, I see the consolidation of power going to few. I mean, yes. the media is really being consolidated. News distribution in the United States. I was getting a lot of local news on Twitter. Mm. Now no more. <laughs> I've left Twitter and now I rely on Mastodon. But you see few players. These players are coming and subsuming the smaller players. Yes. Boomi will be bought up if it hasn't already yeah. Yeah. by Sony yes. or some other yeah. Tencent or, or something. TikTok. Yeah, TikTok is one of the big... Or WeChat. You know, they do everything in China these days, right? Mm -hmm. Ying, or what do you think about WeChat Ying, in, in China? Yeah. Do, I mean, it's a WeChat? Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I don't know exactly how they work, but I know that they have these very, like, extremely broad set of services, and basically you can do most of the things you need on a single app, more or less, and you get music for yeah. free, more or less. And, and do right. you think do you think that trend in having you know these kind of universal, uh, ubiquitous kind of applications that that take over more and more will continue, or do you think you will rather move in the other direction in having a set of smaller apps um, that mm -hmm. continue to improve. Which direction do you believe will happen in, I in China? Think, I, think, I think with the Chinese system, my, my guess is going to be sort of the few giants just yeah. Yeah. trying to kill each so other. So a clear, <laughs> clear AI. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, yeah. WeChat so. under Tencent and the NetEase uh, Music, which is kind of its major competitor. Um, and I know NetEase um, has is also in, has invest, invested in IVA. Um, so one of the, 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 the um, generation platform which is mentioned. So all of these, they are kind of really competing um, on kind of the music AI startups um, to invest in. And now TikTok um, by then, so of course it's coming to yeah. the streaming picture too. Um, yeah, so it's essentially the, the, the two or three giants. And now there's also a new kind of a concert concept recently that have started uh, with the during the pe uh, COVID period. So there, now essentially there is a special concert that's just made for WeChat for the phone, essentially. Right. So the concert would be in a phone size hmm. um, and everyone just look at the concert um, on their on their phones. Um, so it's only optimized um, for, the, for the phone. So you actually won't be able to yeah. so appreciate main, it as main well. The purpose the of the concert is really to, to publish it on, on WeChat. And, and, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, Rajin, yeah, yeah. Could, could, you, could you humor us a little bit and and, and give uh, like the the two minute version of the of the landscape that we are now going into? Because uh, we hear and understand WeChat is something completely different than what we experience in Sweden, for uh, an example. But we have never experienced it. I mean, so could could you gi give us a flavor? What what is WeChat? What those big things that you're talking about now? Could you just give sort of the thirty second? You know, mm. how are you using them, or how are normal people in university using them in everyday life, or what what are these things as apps all all about? Because I don't think in Sweden or in Northern Europe we, we kind of we we don't understand it because it doesn't work like that in Sweden. So, so WeChat is, um, yeah, kind of a different source. So depending on whether you want to hear more of the story of the music streaming platforms, which would be Tencent Music versus NetEase Music. 
And Tencent Music and WeChat are kind of both under Tencent, right? Um, so WeChat is, is is the social media. Um, it's like I think it's it's coming up. It's very similar to WhatsApp, right? Except that you can do much more. Um, and I think the interesting part here, which because I'm also a singer songwriter, and I recently actually signed a song deal with NetEast Music, and it was very interesting for me to for the first time learn how the platform kind of the inside of it um, for the artist, works. Yeah. Yeah, so so the way it works now, so uh, QQ Tencent Music versus NetEase Music are you know similar to the Spotify versus Apple Music competition, except that they are n- much more than streaming platforms, such that even so they control all so much resources that they kind of function as a record label in a way because they also sign artists, and mm-hmm. they control all the kind of you know al- I mean algorithm essentially. So which song gets um, streaming gets gets clicks you know it's up to NetEase music and um um you know depending on on the spotlight or what the app position that NetEase music or Tencent uh, gives to a particular song so even the record labels like Warner Music right has to actually try very hard to get one day of spotlight um spot from from um NetEase or so in this regard I think slightly similar to Spotify or Apple Music except that Tencent Music and NetEase Music has way more power um in the music industry in China um I think it's it's kind of really passing uh the power of record labels at the moment um and they 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 make their own songs they have their own music AI lab too working on automatic generation a lot so both Tencent and and NetEase has their own kind of music AI um, um, research lab group going on. Um, so that's kind of the music streaming side. Um, yeah, um, it's it's a really complicated um, picture, which I'm also just in the process of learning with this song that I recently released with them. Um, but WeChat is basically how you live um, yeah. in China. Is uh, so scholar. Uh, even you know, for instance, if you want to reach a Chinese professor. You don't find him via or her via email. It's WeChat, so everything's WeChat. Yeah, mm-hmm. it Have is. You tried it? I, I, we, I, we? In when I was in London, we had several students from China in the program I was teaching, and we had to use WeChat to talk with them. <laughs> so you, so oh, I we, didn't know you have a WeChat account, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been years since I've checked it. Wow. I mean, it is yeah. kind of interesting with that kind of super universal app. And, and Elon Musk is saying, you know, he wants to turn Twitter into WeChat as well. We'll see what happens mm-hmm. with that. But um, And then well, there's Weibo, which is, Weibo is more like Twitter. WeChat is more like WhatsApp. Um, and, and it's interesting when, when uh, Twitter recently, you know, was talk, coming up with the payment plan and all the Chinese public was like, oh, oh we just stole, stole this idea from Weibo because <laughs> it was ex- exactly what Weibo did. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess you, you don't see any kind of um, break in, in that trend. It, it's still that, you know, the, the big tech giant, the few tech giants in China is continue to increase the power, right? Yeah. yeah, it's very difficult in the Chinese system to write for the small star. But same, I think, with musicians, you know, for the mm. indie musicians yeah. to actually um, get a stage, you know, you can without affiliating yourself with either Tencent or NetEase. So you kind of have to choose. So for instance, my song, this one I just signed with NetEase, the deal is I'm not allowed to upload it on on um, Tencent. Mm-hmm. So the only uh, exclusion is Tencent. I think also they added a TikTok because they just uh, <laughs> enter the scene now with the streaming uh, uh, tool, but they don't care if I release the song overseas. So it's all okay except for Tencent. Uh-huh. Right. Interesting. 
Cool. I, I see the time is flying away. If, if you need to go to bed, you know, ring, just let us know. Other, otherwise, we continue uh, for some time. And, and, and yeah, I, I can I can free actually. Yeah, it's yeah. fine. But I, you know, just yeah. I don't need to talk so much. So no, no, <laughs> it's awesome. Cool. Please, just call me whenever I'm needed. Yes. I'm feeling a bit bad that we are keeping keeping you up the, that this late, but uh, great if you could continue. But I, I'd love to. Yeah, to I recently came yeah. back from the uh, the states, so I'm actually still on a weird time zone uh, myself. Uh, I see. Awesome. I, I'd like to move to a bit more more philosophical and societal kind of questions. And one thing that I was thinking is, if someone's listening to this and they are, you know, very passionate into data science and AI and also in music. And I'm thinking about you, Bob, and, and what kind of research you're doing, etc. And, and they want to really engage in this. What would you recommend that they would focus on? I mean, for one, they could just move into super technical kind of understanding of you know how deep learning works or, or whatnot, or generative AI or whatnot. But what is? I guess there are some kind of areas that are good to move into if you like both music and AI, and some that are bad. What would you be your recommendation for someone? Um, a good, I mean, it's always good to become familiar with what's available in terms of tools. Yeah. Um, there's a music transformer. Yeah. It's a Jupyter notebook. You just plug it in, you change some parameters, you hit, mm. hit uh, you know, run, and then you've got a result. Yes. Uh, relatively easy to get going and to work with. FolkRNN, the system that we have, it's on, on folkrnn.org. You can go there and experiment with a Irish model, a Swedish model. Mm. It's writing, you know, any many types of, uh, or imitating many types of Swedish traditional dance mm. music and a variety of other models. And you start to see, yeah. you know, what, what's possible with these these systems. But, okay, so you gave us some, a number of like technical examples of how you can start to experiment with using AI in music in some ways. But if you speak more on perhaps your side of a research project you're doing, what do you think that, you know, funding will go into and perhaps they want to collaborate with your research group in some way mm-hmm. and, and they want to be able to study in the proper way to, to have the right focus in coming years. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think more like that, is it more societal kind of part of questions, economical, what the business will be around the music industry or is, should they really focus on technology? You know, things in, in a bit more general sense. Yeah. Um, my One of my favorite things to do is to break a system and figure out why it's broken. Or okay. figure out why it was broken to begin with before I even started right. breaking it. Yeah. Uh, I see a lot of work being done in assembling data sets, building architectures, uh, you know, searching over hyperparameters, training, 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 and then computing numbers on some test set and then publishing. Like model-centric kind of, you know, tuning and model to benchmark to uh, optimization. Yeah, yeah. and the, the game is to try to beat the state Bench. of the art. Yes, yes. some and kind of benchmark. Beat, beat the benchmark. And, and if you have a statistical test that shows significance, it's even better for the peer reviewer. Mm. And you got a publication. What do you think about that system? And because it's still very you know, prevalent in, in the normal kind of AI conferences that we have out there. Do you think it's a good way to publish papers or get pu- papers published? I think it's, it's a, a rather low hanging bar to try to exceed. Mm, I think what is more interesting and a better contribution is once you have those numbers, and maybe they're not even better than the benchmark, you explain them. You try to figure out what it is in the system or in the data or in the procedures that led to these numbers that caused them. 
And so I'm, I've done that in the past with uh, focusing on music genre recognition systems. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, this is an area that is very interesting in terms of crossing the way science and technology and engineering is practiced and its relationship to humanities and how it bears very little um, meaningfulness for people who actually study music mm-hmm. and talk about genre. Um, but it's the most studied area in music informatics I can by far because it's easy to do. You assemble yeah. a data set, you say that's pop, that's rock, and I'm going to build a system that can discriminate between them. I know we, we did in Spotify a number of like uh, music genre classification systems. I even know that we collaborated from the time at Peltarium with Coltomy and others to Epidemic Sound doing that genre classification. It seems like the first thing you try. Yeah, and it has its use. I mean, it's yeah. a great way to teach a student how to build a, a data set, how to create a train validation test set, how to build an architecture, how to debug. Uh, but it doesn't. that's where the work starts at the very end of that process when you have a model that is appearing to be very successfully recognizing classical and jazz and disco. Yeah. But then the, the, the hard part is to answer why. What is it in the signal or the architecture that's causing it to discriminate between disco and rock? Mm-hmm. And I don't care if the, if the percentage is better than, you know. Right. Is it focusing? Is it really listening to lyrics? Or is it really able to judge syncopation? Mm. Or is it some kind of extraneous information in the data that has nothing to do with the music at all? So this is one of my favorite papers actually finds that the when we took a music genre data set, that's the most used public data set of this kind, it's only a thousand excerpts. 30-second mm-hmm. song, small data set at that uh, at now. But in 2002, when this was published, it was the biggest data set of its kind. <laughs> took a lot of hours of the PhD student to label these. But when we looked at what the system was actually doing to get 90% right in the data set, we found that there was a particular signature in some of the signals below 30 hertz <laughs> that humans can't hear, that it was causing it to say that's country music. You know, and that's that's really? rock. Oh, interesting. And it appears to have come about from the student's microphone setup that had a drift, <laughs> a DC drifts, yeah. low frequency drifts. It means nothing for the music, but the system learned to pick up on the signature and say, "This is this is definitely country." So it's, um, it's, it's one of those crazy things. What is it actually measuring? And it's all bullshit. Yes. But but uh, yeah. it's still accurate. <laughs> I mean, it's very <laughs> sometimes as long as that confound is preserved. If, if that, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's ex- exactly like the the paper. I think 2016 or something. Why should I trust you? It was a paper. I think it was from Google, and it looked at some image recognition uh, example where they want to classify. I think uh, dogs versus uh, huskies versus wolves. Yes. Snow. The snow thing. So it, it turned out to be, you know, the data set just, you know, had snow in the background with all the wolves. And other, for dogs, you know, it basically it was not snow. So the only thing it was was a slow snow detector <laughs> and had nothing to do with a dog versus wolf. And then they, you know, argue that you should have explainable AI to be able huh. to understand this and, and see if there are problems with the data set that they huh. have. Is that your answer here as well? No. 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 Oh. Uh, so what is explainable AI? It's it's asking the system for a explanation of, you know, show me the item on the picture that caused you to yes. label that. So yeah. like Lime or uh, saliency maps, but this can easily fool 
uh, the researcher into thinking that the system is making a correct mistake yeah. or a correct, uh, given a correct reason. Instead, what does a scientific experiment involve? It involves yeah. an intervention of some uh, kind, mm. right? Of changing the output to look or changing the input to see how the output changes. Mm. It also involves dissection and looking at what's going on inside and trying it's more to more into counterfactuals, trying to find, you know, what really a change that would actually change mm-hmm. the prediction in some way. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. That's hard. And this, it's hard. Uh, it, it involves a creativity that's not taught in engineering education mm-hmm. to think about doing this to our systems. We talk about distances between, you know, from the decision boundaries, um, log likelihood. We talk about these measures. But what actually is important here is to uh, try to figure out the cause of the correct answer mm-hmm. and the incorrect answers of the system. Cool. So one area that you would recommend if someone wants to have a chance to become a <coughs> PhD student at your group, then they should be really well read up on uh, on, on good uh, the proper explainable AI then. Or I don't. I haven't seen a proper explainable AI yet. <laughs> but I, I would say there's a couple texts that they should read. Yeah. One was published in 1911 called the um, Clever Hans, a, a contribution to experimental psychology by Oscar Funkst that's about the horse that appeared to be able to do mathematics and how this, uh, this person applied a proper experimental procedure with controls to find out that the horse knows nothing about mathematics and that it was operating based on a confounding of the person asking the horse questions that involved them lowering to look at the hoof that was tapping the correct answer and then raising up when the horse reached the correct answer. <laughs> this is the approach that I'm taking with the systems. Interesting. So, 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 okay, let me ask the dumb question just to elaborate on it. Why is this important? Why is this uh, to go deeper in these areas rather than going for better benchmarks? Why is this so important, do you think? Because we can't trust the systems in, unless we understand them. And we can't seek, we can't find ways to improve them unless we know what they're deficient in. Mm. Why are they making wrong answers? Why are they making right answers for the wrong reasons? And how can we build better data sets? How can we build better training? How can we employ the systems in a public public space where there may be harms caused by the the systems? Luckily, I work in music where nobody's going to (laughs) die from an AI system composing a song. They they could argue about music. I've been close to being beaten when playing dance band music in Spotify in, in Fridays. <laughs> they, they were very angry with me, I can tell you. I'm kidding a bit here. Schlager music? Yeah, it's Schlager, Schlager. yes. Okay. yes. <laughs> they, they didn't like that at Spotify, I can tell you. Oh, that's got a time and place though. <laughs> oh, but it's, it's so funny with, with, with all the, the coolest music geeks and then Anders, I like Swedish yeah. dance band. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Uh, do, do you have any, you know, recommendations for someone that want to have a career like yours, that want to get more into research into music business or, or music ethics, or what, what would you recommend someone that wants to become a PhD student potentially? Hmm. I think, um, yeah, because my entry to the field is actually um, almost um, entirely by accident. So um, actually, my number one recommendation would be to talk to people who's, um, you know, um, either pursuing a PhD or has has got a PhD, because I definitely came into the PhD program not knowing what I was getting myself into um, and actually not even know what 
the possible careers are um, beyond a music PhD. Um, but other than that, I think it's just it's really passion. I think you mm-hmm. really have to enjoy um, the subject. Um, you know, you, it, it would be the best if you already sort of have a potential area of interest. Um, um, I actually started my first project was indigenous music in Taiwan. So um, I was an exchange student, a student in, in Taiwan for the summer of 2010. I kind of just stumbled upon this this project. And that's what actually got me into um, the PhD program directly as an, from an undergrad. So, um, yeah, I would I would actually say just think about, you know, what really what 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 interests you and if there is kind of a burning question or bur- yeah I, I think passion is really so important i think to any any phd program because mm-hmm. if you don't have that it, it's very difficult to to finish it yeah would you recommend someone to pursue a phd or would you do you think most people that don't have a strong passion that they should do something else or who do you think is the right person to potentially pursue a phd Yeah, well, don't come for the money because yeah. you don't get that. <laughs> so, um, right. So um, there's that aspect, um, and I think also just think about the lifestyle of a of a scholar and researcher and teacher, and if that's what excites you and you know what you enjoy. Because that it also took me so many years to figure out. Um, I think I definitely have no regret about the PhD. Mm-hmm. The, the you know that that I I chose to do this that the. the process was so rewarding but i think that it it was difficult for me um to imagine myself as a scholar teacher for life that kind of took a long time because i never thought of myself this way so um but i also think the the academia the music academia is also coming place to a place where people are starting to have conversations about diversifying uh the career possibilities beyond sort of outside of um, when, you know, uh, from a music PhD program. So we actually just had a colleague, uh, music, um, uh, musicology PhD too from Harvard, who recently became, um, um, uh, got a job at a, a Smithsonian uh, museum, which is really amazing. Um, and we started to see kind of very diverse and more exciting career path coming out of a music PhD because traditionally it's 90%. Uh, a professor, right, mm-hmm. um, out of the humanities uh, PhD, which is quite different from uh, the sciences. So I really was, and and for me, because I got into the PhD program really young, uh, out right out of um, undergrad. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I wouldn't recommend that. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my uh, colleagues in my cohort had a master and were like um, eight or ten years older than me, and I I think I was intellectually not quite at a place of doing a PhD program when I got into it. Um, so the first few years was, was difficult because I feel like now I'm ready to go to a PhD program. Essentially. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so yeah, it was a bit too early, kind of the right thing, but not really at the, uh, the optimal time for me. Yeah. But I think eventually it all worked out, but it was difficult um, yeah, a yeah. process when you go in so young. So I actually would say for it, essentially, especially for humanities programs that, in music, I, I would say don't rush into it because mm. I've seen, you know, I, I have colleagues who's been a musician for so many years, you know, being uh, working in the Washington Post and they've had careers um, before they get into a musicology PhD. And I actually think at that point, it's much clearer, you know, why you are doing this and, and you know, so what, what you're coming here for. Mm-hmm. So, Bob, do you have any thoughts about that? Who and why should you potentially 
receive a PhD? I would say not everyone needs a PhD. Uh, if you like to think, read, and write a lot, yeah. and if you, um, I mean, it's 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 a difficult path mm. to do a PhD. It's not just a job. It requires a lot. It's a lifestyle. In intellectually, some way. it's a lifestyle. Mm. For some reason, since I was young, I wanted to be a professor. And to okay. on that route, to be a professor, you need a PhD to show you can do research and supervise students and teach at a sufficient level. Mm. I don't know why that is, but that was sort of my path. But I didn't go into my PhD right after my bachelor's. I okay. worked for a year. Yeah. I I'm went to do a master's, did another master's, did another master's. And then I signed up, kind of figured out, okay, I know what I want to do for my PhD. And that was took seven years <laughs> to do to do that. Um, and it was as intellectually challenging as emotionally challenging, mm. too. Yeah. In what way emotionally? I mean, anxiety, anxiety. And uncertainty, and depression, and loneliness. <laughs> <laughs> you're really selling it well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like you're a Russian uh, literature. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as a PhD student, I put a lot of my personal value in the work I was doing. And when I found another paper that was doing what I was doing, it was a, a strike to the heart in a sense. And through this, this wasn't healthy. I sort of started to separate my worth from my work, which was a nice thing to do. It was no longer a make or break deal. Uh, a rejection of a paper was not personal. A, <laughs> destruction. It, it, maybe mm. the reviewer did get personal, but now I could sort of say, "Oh, well, this rev reviewer too. Bad day. You know, it's okay." I don't didn't lose a lot of sleep after that. And of course, this returns uh, when you you have a grant proposal and it's revised again and rejected, revised again and rejected. You know, it, it, after a string of failures, it starts to. Um, Sting still, but it's a learning experience. I, I remember my first like paper react. You know, it's it's a really tough thing to go through. But you know, I saw recently from the NeurIPS um, AI conference, and they had this kind of list of honored kind of papers. So some you know, ten uh, twenty papers were like selected as the top papers that they had in the conference. And then they looked at the, the reviews for those. Mm. Some were more or less reacting the paper that later got selected to the top paper in the conference. Random. And it is very random, yeah. isn't it? Or it is. It, uh, it's tricky. I mean, if you use a word uh, template instead of a tech template, mm. that's pretty much, all right, it's going to reject pile in the machine learning or engineering conference. Simply because yeah. you didn't use the right... Uh, it's a word template, yeah. yeah. You've got to use the tech. So there's some certain there's some values at play in our domain where if the figures aren't legible, it annoys me as a reviewer because it makes me think, okay, you don't care enough to communicate your results so I can read it. I need to get out this special magnifying glass to see. Um, but there, yeah, there's these things that that happen. Cool. Uh, I'd like to, since the time is flying away here, uh, move into to a bit more philosophical. Actually, uh, can, can I stick? Yeah. Uh, can I take yes. one uh, almost a little bit personal question in, in between? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, maybe also philosophical or cultural. You know, tell me, tell us about this. You know, why did you want to go to Europe? Or why? Did, oh. What was the sort of uh, what was that thinking all about? How did mm. you end up in Europe? 
I think um, having, uh, let's say, leftist politics in Southern California, where I was doing a PhD, mm. identifying uh, against the encroachment of religion in the public sphere, um, thoughts around guns and vaccines, mm. uh, anti-intellectualism. Mm. There was quite in, in 2000, and, I mean, this was George W. Bush. Yeah, well, when is right? this? 2000 and what was it? 2002, 2004. Um, Barack Obama came 2008, yeah. and that's when we left, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. just the opportunity arise, arose in, in yeah. France. Um, I wanted to escape this anti-intellectual environment. So, so you, you felt you felt you know more and more alienated from your own thoughts or how you wanted to be in 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 America. Somewhat, somewhat it's in some in Santa Barbara, California, it's quite you know left leaning. Mm. There's little enclaves that I was in San Diego, some parts of San Diego. There's parts that are left leaning. Mm-hmm. And you can be in this little bubble, and it's nice, and you're never challenged in a sense. Um, but the news every day of this, you know, this sort of environment that the values weren't matching mine. And f- more practically, the experts in the field I was working in at that time, sparse signal processing, were in Europe. All right. So there was a and so very, this was the opportunity, concrete, concrete opportunity there. Yeah, yeah. So that was the opportunity. Now. In in Europe, it's uh, we landed in Paris. Everywhere you turn in Paris, it's a very old building. We were amazed. The boulangeries were amazing. The food was amazing. So you got a honeymoon there. I mean, like the, the honeymoon of Europe. Yeah. So. And then uh, moving to Copenhagen in Denmark in the winter time was awful. <laughs> <laughs> But then the summers came, and it was just and we got bikes and the whole experience of being a, a, a assistant professor there yeah. was incredible. Yeah. Um, and then moving to London, where now pensionary promises were being, you know, cut, and the the decay of the institution was quite visible. The morale was quite poor among employees. Oh, I just wanted to. So, so then you felt, oh no 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 no, back back to Scandinavia, back back that way. That yeah. that way was good. So you you found a little bit. So you find it ho- you find it at home in in, in Scandinavia and Scandinavian culture. I identify more with the the politics and the value systems that play in Scandinavia mm-hmm. than in the United States. So in in this way, you are becoming Swedified <laughs> or something. Scandified, yeah. Scandified, Scandified. Yeah. I mean, there are problems out everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I, you know, had a lot of culture shock, yeah, and yeah. even in. London and England, where they speak the same language, yeah, yeah. there's con- still some considerable friction, um, friction that happens, yeah. and I get shocked. I mean, and one thing that I miss about the United States at times is the ability to accept multiculturalism mm-hmm. overtly right. and to be sensitive to these topics. Yeah. Whereas, you know, sometimes in Denmark or in France, it was quite strange views being, you know bandied about that, you know, made me uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's pros and cons everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's interesting to hear, you know, someone who's sort of, you know, taking Scandinavia to heart, you know, why, you know. Mm-hmm. Thanks. So another question now, and I'm moving more into, f- uh, I guess, more um, trying to predict the future a bit here, but what do you think is missing 
in AI of today, um, of the current you know type of deep learning that we may be having, or other types of techniques that we're using to try to use machine learning or other types of AI to build increasingly intelligent machines. What do you think is potentially missing uh, that we need to fix going forward in coming 10 years or something? Uh, approaches to evaluating these systems, the experimental right. designs that are appropriate, creativity in designing experiments that pick apart the causes of a machine's behavior. Yeah. I think too much focus is put on collecting as much data as possible. Yeah. So you don't believe in the, the scaling laws of like data sizes and model sizes? I think for some problems, scale is where your solutions lie. Mm. But it, but it, but it's a, it's a huge trend how it's used. The bigger, the better. Scaling, scaling, billion dollar, uh, you know, billions of. Mm-hmm. The, uh, this foundation model mm-hmm. trend, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, extreme right now in, in where the money is going. Mm-hmm. Is is that the only answer here? I mean, like, so I, I think that's also. Explainability, yes, uh, but uh, what about all the you know going completely opposite to foundation model? Will will they be useful in every case, or do we need more narrow models or be more precise? Yep. We need adaptive models. Adaptive models. Data is changing. The situation that your your system has been trained on is no longer applicable to the situation the customers find themselves in today. Right? right? This target is moving. Styles of music are moving. Uh, values and, and tastes are changing. Now, and what does that mean in terms of uh, missing techniques or other types of research or techniques if we talk about highly adaptive models? What would that be? The systems need calibration constantly, um, transferring their knowledge to, you know, and adapting to new domains. Um, I think reinforcement learning frameworks are, are very interesting and I'm starting to get more and more into them mm. so that the system is able to as long as it has an appropriately defined environments and reward, it's creating its own data as it goes. And it starts to build an understanding of what the world. What do you mean creating way. data? Because reinforcement, you know, that's actually where I started my PhD in for, for a very long time. But that's a big problem as well, that it, it needs so much data to be able to work in. It works well for situations where you can simulate the world, like, you know, the chess and the alpha goes of the world and, and whatnot. But when you don't have a lot of data, it's really hard to build like a well-working system. But but you said something about creating data as you go. Can you elaborate a bit more what you mean with that? So methods of uh, intrinsic motivation or, or um, you know, this, these modes of learning where you're trying to understand your action on the world and the results that come about mm. and seek those areas in which you you don't know much about the, the impact of your effects. Right. That's, yeah. I mean, I I'm, have a PhD student that's getting into this and he's becoming more expert than I am. And what we're interested in here is not to build, um, a, say, an artificial agent that is able to play the piano, mm-hmm. but an a- agent that has built itself with a voice, sort of a vocal model. Yeah. It's got parameters that it's changing, mm-hmm. and it's got an acoustic environment, and it's got a sense of hearing, mm-hmm. and it's learning mm-hmm. to control those parameters to sing in this environment and cause effects and, and what have you. Mm-hmm. Mapping... It's um, mapping the rewards onto these behaviors and then interacting with other systems mm-hmm. and then building these syst- ecosystems of agents interacting with one another and building up yeah. musical styles or tastes 
and exploring what that means. I have sense. a comment on this that I'd like to explore with you. But before that, I'd love to hear your uh, view, Rushing. Um, what do you think is missing in the current type of AI systems that we have today? So since I don't have um, a background in computer science and in my area is really more kind of the cultural, ethical um, questions. Yeah, I was thinking about, I guess, um, yes, you know, part of, I guess, what I am um, not so enthusiastic about is that kind of the, the bigger, the faster, uh, you know, that's create <coughs> a, a million songs in, in, in five minutes. So I think it's that general uh, sense of um, quantity over quality, a little bit of that, I guess. Um, um, I'd just like to, to interrupt quickly because you said the bigger, the better or something, but you should look into a music video on YouTube mm -hmm. and search for the biggest, the best. It's actually with um, a, um, a video and a music, <laughs> a song created by a friend okay. of ours. It's very much into a metal kind of music. It's not my style or type of music, but it's about mm -hmm. data science and about AI. So mm -hmm. uh, you should look into the biggest, the best uh, in YouTube at some point yeah. later. Sounds yeah. good. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, because I was also thinking about the loudness war, right? In, yeah. in music production, right? These days, it's the louder, the better too. So even in music yes. production now, the dB level has just yeah kept increasing. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like with AI coming in, it's, yeah, it's, it's just getting it, that that scale, that that focus on scale and number. Yeah, is is what is making me think. Um, mm. Uh, let me, if I may, take a minute to, to just give a short view of how I see it. And, and if you compare to humans, I think we can easily understand a bit, at least in a superficial way, how human brain works. I mean, we basically have some kind of metal, mental model that we are producing in our prefrontal cortex that is basically trying to build up you know, how the physical world works, but in a simulated mental model that we're building up constantly in the world. And it's continuously adapting, as you spoke about. We are continuously taking data through all our senses to continuously update this kind of world model, as some people call it, or the, mo the mental model that we have of the world. When I speak to you, Henrik, or to you, Bob, and, and you, Yang, you have your own mental model of what we're speaking about right now. It's not matching correctly. You, there is a semantic gap, as you call it, between uh, what you have as a model about what I'm speaking about right now or, or whatever. And, and this kind of mental model is, is really a powerful thing, uh, I believe. If you then look at you know, GPT or whatever kind of system that we have today and compare that to the mental model that we have in the brain, I think there are a number of things missing. One is what you said. It's online. It's adapting all the time. That's not how the AI systems of today works. They are trained offline in batch mode in some way. And um, you may try to adapt them, but usually it's very batch-oriented instead of online adapting, as you say. So that's one big difference, of course. The other, of course, is the men mental model is very general compared to the AI systems of the day, perhaps with the exception of chat GPT and others that are getting increasingly general. But in, in general, most AI systems are very specific and narrow. Um, and then I think, you know, the, the biggest, one of the bigger things is the mental model itself, that AI systems like ChatGPT, like GPT, they don't have a mental model. They don't have a world model that is continuously updating. It is a fixed set of parameters in some model being run somewhere on a big cluster of GPUs. And it, that set of parameters is not being updated. So it's not a mental model that it's having 
that is continuously updating at all. So the lack of the mental model or the world model, this is similar to what Jan LeCun wrote in his paper, the JEPA paper. I mean, he's also speaking about this kind of mental model that you need to have. But there are a number of things here that I think is a clear distinction between what the type of AI systems we have today looks like and, and how the brain works that we should try to find a fix for. W- would you agree? Yeah. Uh, actually, one of my PhD students is working on a uh, uh, envisioning explainable AI as a communication process. Oh, and awesome. what one thing she's saying is that the uh, there's an opportunity for miscommunication. Mm-hmm. We need a second step that is asking the machine, is my interpretation of your output correct? Mm-hmm. So how do we communicate with the machine to, to put it in that language? Right. How can right. we compare these, these mental models that yeah, yeah, we yeah. have with the machine? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. We think we're talking about the same thing. We're saying fruit salad. We are, we are thinking apple, but, pineapple. but it's a pineapple over there. Mm-hmm. And we need to have a check for that to figure that out. They're both good. Apple and pineapple. They're both good. <laughs> They're both fruit, but not the same. So going even deeper here into uh, philosophical mode, um, then we have to go into consciousness or being sentient or whatnot. And, and, you know, there is this famous example of the Google chatbot called Lambda and that uh, Google engineer Blake Lemoyne or something was his name, I believe, claimed that it was conscious. Would you agree with that? Or Mm -hmm. what's your thought about his claims? No, it's a series of, of matrix multiplies and nonlinearities. Isn't the human brain the same? No. What's the difference? <laughs> we well, we don't have such a quanti- quantized yeah. representation. We're not performing. So it's more analog multiplies. in some ways. No. But isn't the the single neuron also a computation from an electrochemical point of view that's that's going on in some way? Perhaps, but it's that this is not in my area of, of expertise, actually. Yeah, it's philosophy. So you can we, just we're having answer. fun. So, and, and by the way, we don't think it's, do you think it's no, conscious? No, absolutely not. And, and I think, well, you, you know, want to argue. Yes. <laughs> no, of course, I don't I mean, think so. Does it have a personality? Exactly. Yes. Does I think my, the systems that I work with, the folk RNN system has a personality. Okay. How do you, in, in, okay, interesting. How do you define personality when you say it like that? In, in what, in what, how do you define how do you describe personality then? I will give it some input and have expectations of what it will produce, mm-hmm. particular characteristics, and it sometimes does that. It matches with my expectations. No, and is that personality? Because I, it's also for me, is this like how we use words, like personality, and all of a sudden I have a very human-centric understanding of that word. Or it has a personality mm-hmm. like a dog or like a, my, my son, my three sons has very different personality. Mm-hmm. But what, what is personality then describing? It has some t- characteristics that we kind of know mm-hmm. if he will be a joker or... <laughs> and it sort of describes the loss I would feel if this system were to be erased. Ah. I would have a loss because it's a, a collaborator in my music, dis- my music exploration. Mm. And so that personality would be missing. And, and, and th- this is so cool because... Going into this podcast, I, I have one understanding for this whole discussion now. And now when I'm sort of a little bit immersed in what you've been researching and that actually different philosophies has very different views on 
objects and stuff like that. And I, if I used to take a pinch of that, I don't even understand it, but I used to try to put myself in that shoe. All of a sudden, personality means something completely different than mm-hmm. what I would usually have as an argument. Mm-hmm. I, I find that interesting how fast also we can adapt things into this. Mm-hmm. Anthropomorphize, right? You yeah. get yeah. some human feelings, you know, about potentially mechanical system. I would love to hear, Rujin, your thoughts about this, especially given your, you know, comments about uh, Confucianism and Taoism and that everything has a spirit, etc. Do you believe that there are AI models out there that are potentially conscious? So, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, especially as a, as, as a scholar, um, really it's about definitions um, mm. because the personality question, then we have to first trace back to what's a person. Exactly. Right? And that is a very different um, w- when you go to different schools of thought and it can be radically different. So, so for instance, we've been, I know there's a community thinking about computational creativity, right? So what is mm. creativity? Is creative, creativity just something mm. new that never existed before? But some art uh, cre- uh, critic has come argue that no, there is actually, you know, when you want to go actually deeper and more philosophical into the creative process, right? Then some can argue that um, the AI created art is based on certain rules that kind of go on uh, with the logic of the sameness, right? It's always, I think, yeah, I'm actually having the quote here is, is uh, there's a desire for the similar and for the same, and it's lacking the elements of transcendence and transgression that's kind of the essence of human creative process so yeah it's i think really has we have to go back to to how we define Mm. what we mean by consciousness and by personhood um right that same questions of how many of your human parts can be replaced by robotic parts um right that that classic question until you're no longer a human um yeah, and it's a difficult one. And as part of the AI Song Contest organizer uh, work, um, you already see so many different ways of treating AI. Some as tools, some as their partners. Some actually really think their their AI uh, partner co- uh, co-creator is really function acting like you know their co-songwriter, right? Um, and in the book chapter, Bob and I uh, we work together on when we interview all these different practitioners. Yeah, there there's very different um, thing. Uh, opinions about this, um, whether AI can be a member. Um, mm. That's kind of on the right parallel to to the human agents in society. Mm. Yeah. But yeah. W- what is your view? I guess my. I f- I feel like I'm increasingly uh, getting into the the kind of chi system, the the Taoist. Uh, way of thinking about different items um, possessing different types of vital energy so if that becomes the way I see the world then I guess yes it's you know it's just part of um, actants um, you know it's, it's one kind of um, actor or actor you would say in this world and um, human or non-human it also becomes it's it's a question that even if you if we shift to the Taoist model of thinking um the distinction is actually not very important. Like especially in you know, there are some again within Taoism, there's very different schools of thinking. But a huge part is actually uh, a huge argument is that this whole distinction we're trying to uphold, you know, about human versus non-human, is just 
yeah, it's not healthy. But I must say, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by this. Uh, to be in a podcast and talking to smart people is so rewarding. And, and I, had, I have had a really big moment today because I realized, and you are doing it so fluently, Rujing, that I'm blown away. You are highlighting the importance that before we can define intelligence, we can define a person or, you know, consciousness, you casually spell in, well, if I use this philosophical system, then I would argue like this. And I'm completely missing that in most of the ethical or any of these discussions. We go in a very technocratic conversation in and trying to find this when it has a fundamental connection to the philosophical starting point. I find that so clearly explained and understood today, and I've never used that entry point before. So thank you for that. Uh, oh, do you see what you I mean? So yeah. you, I mean, like, it, it brings a completely yeah. different level of clarity on, on the definition of consciousness. Well, are you a Confucianist, first of all? Are you Catholic? What are you? Which, which philosophical angle do we take into this conversation so we can actually talk, stop, stop talking fruit, and start comparing the pineapple. Find that very, very Thank cool. You. I'm so glad to hear. And I think, yeah, for me, I really benefit hugely from that classical Chinese ethical. And so the class, the Chinese philosophy class I talk about at Harvard that I taught twice for two semesters was was called classical Chinese ethical and political reasoning. Um, and, and so, yeah, the questions we're thinking about with the students is what is goodness according to, so a week is so one philosophical school per week, right? So in this week, what what is goodness? What is ethical? So Next good. week, now we move to another philo philosopher. It's completely different. So, so good. Uh, and, and how can we ever, you know, come come through conflicts even on on a, on a, on on any scale? That's politics. If we are not wanting to understand the phil philosophical starting points of each other, that's politics. That's rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah, some people are really good at, unfortunately. Yeah, um, but it's, I wish it could be more into the core ideals that we have and the culture and and the philosophy that we make use of. I must still ask one more question, Rujing. How do you define goodness? Hmm. Which philosophy? <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. Well, which philosophy? That's also. Let me let me start with mine and see what you think. I think, you know, one general rule, rule of, of goodness is the golden rule, so to speak. Yeah. The, the rule that is in Christianity and, and basically any kind of religion that you can think of in the Quran and, and mm -hmm. whatnot saying you should mm -hmm. treat, uh, treat your neighbor as yourself. You should basically, if you want to do something good, imagine yourself in the same position or situation as the other person and act accordingly. Do you think that kind of golden rule is is general or some kind of good way to define? I see that you don't like it, Bob. But what do you think, Ring? Yeah, you know, because there are it's it's such uh, yeah. There's so so I'm thinking, for instance, of Mohism. I talk about modes. Uh, so it, there's a very what's the word utilitarian way yes, of uh, yeah. there's a whole calculus, yeah, of good versus bad, and it's based on the societal good that you've caused. And so yeah, there's there was that calculus of, of benefits of mm. like, you know, societal good that you create. So that's emohism. And so for Confucianism, it's all about ritual, right? So a good uh, sorry, human Sorry, it's being, all about ritual. 
ritual. So yeah, ritual is uh, our uh, ritual. So kind of yeah. Yeah, it's ritual. So tradition what, 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 rituals. Uh, rituals. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I see. Yeah. R I T U A L. Yeah. Yes. So ritual, and uh, which means that it's all about self cultivation. So a ultimate good person is one who has achieved a very high level of self cultivation uh, through ritual. And again, mm-hmm. that goes. We, then we have to go into what ritual means in, in yeah. Confucianism. But for, again, I'm not even talking about Confucianism as a whole. I'm talking about Confucius because in within yes. Confuci- in Confucianism. You get very different um, scholars thinking differently too. So, I'm yeah. I guess for me, I'm actually I think I'm more of a Taoist than uh, Confucian. So, in which case, it's it's then about the concept of the way. You know, I don't know if you've heard. You know that there are all these books about the, way, the yeah. fundamental. Yeah, the way, the Tao, right? The Tao of living. So, kind of you have to. And the first line of the Taoist uh, text is that. What can be said? So the way is the way that cannot be uttered. So if you can utter it, then it's not a way. So it's kind of this mythic, you know, kind of um, <laughs> thing that cannot be explained. But but yeah. So in the class, we actually try to put it into words, and it's kind of this. You get into this this flow, this way of uh, transforming yourself and kind of flowing with nature, with the world. And nature in Taoism is it doesn't even mean the nature we mean today, like you know mountains or sea no it's not that nature is translated as s is so yeah it, it gets i guess it gets goes to philosophical but yeah it's kind of the way of being of being able to just flow and transform with with the world and so that's why in Taoism, the human and so there's a famous chapter about how there's a human thinking but in the end it's actually the human think it was the human thinking part was actually a butterfly dreaming about human thinking so it was all about the, the shifting of um <laughs> perspective That's right and and humans should be able to kind of inhabit the perspectives of a bird of a mm. butterfly so that was a good that was good in, in Taoism if you're able to achieve the level of kind of thinking like ca- kind of related to the golden rule that you should be able to imagine yourself in some other being's position so to speak right Right, right. But then, you know, in Confucianism, then there is also the value of the family, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, there's actually one line in in the, the, the Analect, uh, the, fun, the important text in Confucianism, that if your dad commits a crime, then you should not report him because family comes before law, mm-hmm. right? So you're right. And then, yeah. so that's, that's its definition of goodness is family first, yeah. right? So it's very different. Bob, do you have any thoughts about this very simple question? What is goodness? The golden rule was a little bit not... The golden rule, there's several golden rules, yeah. actually, and there's not just one in the in the Bible. Yeah. I, I, right? I think, but or most... In any holy text. Except, but they have their, their own versions of it, right? Um, yes, but uh, treat others as, or treat another as you would want to be treated. This yes. is one. That's fine. Yeah. But if you're a sadomasochist mm. and you like pain, mm. okay, this is a problem. I don't want to be treated like that. So treat mm. others as as they would want to be treated. Okay, that's another rule. But how yeah. do you really do you have access to their their wants, their yeah. desires? How do you really know what they want to how they want to But be treated? It's being difficult is different from being right. So I mean, if you know what the right yeah. way to be good is. That could be one thing, even though it's super difficult to be it. But I, I think if there is a value in, in still knowing, I, if you could, this would be the great way to be good, even though it's super difficult, right? So, so it would still be interesting. That. Okay. okay, I mean, perhaps the person that you are 
treating or interacting with yeah. would like to be um, killed, yes. right? Uh, would want to be, they're miserable, they're feeling miserable. Yeah. Uh, but does that mean it's an imperative that you kill that person? So this is another one that's a bit strange. There's a variety of, of different approaches to ethics. Um, there's some really great introductory texts on ethics mm -hmm. that's tried to define what is good, what is bad, how do we know? Yeah. And another way is something that's very popular right now in, um, I can't remember his name, Effective Altruism, McGaskill, mm -hmm. that what is good is that that increases the benefit for the most people. Or so that, utilitarian, yeah, that's, 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 that's utilitarian. That's, that's yeah. the same with uh, Mohism. Yeah, Mohism, exactly. Very close. Mo yes. Yeah. This but, is lovely for an engineer because you can quantify <laughs> things. You can compute expectations. <laughs> but, but it's also utilitarian kind of thinking, right? It is. Which it's has exactly. its problem. Yeah, it, it is. Exactly. Yeah. It's utilitarianism brought yeah. to a, a T. I mean, yeah. It's like utilitarianism plus the secret. But then the problem comes, you know, you, you can't quantify. value a, a person that you don't know to the same point as someone close to you. So it misses the point, I think, of the golden rule in the sense that someone that you actually interact with is someone that you should prioritize more than someone you don't interact with, mm -hmm. potentially. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, right. Mm -hmm. Then this is talking about the, the family first thing, you know, that we... Yeah. Yeah. Right? And yeah. the billions of people that have yet to exist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It leads to very strange conclusions. Yeah. And there's a variety of other kinds of uh, approaches to ethics, including the supernatural. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. What is good mm -hmm. is defined in the text. Mm. Um, democracy. What is good is the definition of what the majority of people thinks, even if they're uh, idiots uh, and assholes. Yes, and this is the problem with democracy. <laughs> yeah. Democracy it is, is not for sure. good always. I, I think you know, as someone said, democracy uh, is the worst kind of system I can think of, but it's the best one I know. Mm. Uh, and <laughs> and it's kind of a good sentence, I think. You know? mm -hmm. It's like a mini max problem. Yeah. Well, yeah, because we tried so many other things and they all failed. So the only thing that seems to work best so far, even though it's the worst I can think of, is democracy. Yes, uh, and in order for it to work, whatever that means, yeah. the population has to be well educated, enlightened, and and yeah, but, yeah, and uh, engaging. Not, I don't think and democracy, and, and, and democracy without an engaged population is pretty bad. Mm. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially coming coming from a, a you know a communist um country, <laughs> there's in the class we we talk so much about uh, ways of governance, and it was a really good moment to discuss that with the with a student when I taught this. I think it was just when Trump was um, elected, mm -hmm. and and yeah, so so you know there there is a Confucian thinker for for instance who says that you know um, the 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 majority the minds of the majority in in you know. In the public, it's like the, it's that of an infant. So we can never trust the majority for the important decisions, right? The, so the the, yeah. And then there is another thinker who was a legalist thinker who thinks that if the personality should be the last thing that matters, right? So what's important is actually to build the structure and the, the positions of power so that even if we get someone like Trump, it doesn't matter, yeah. right? So it's kind of that that thinker was going towards the more you know, kind of building the system and, and, and the check and balance, right, the structure. And this is all happening in like 200 BC mm. uh, in China, you know, all these very in, in, intense debates about ways of governing. 
so interesting, so and, and the time cool. is, is really flying away. I, I'm really impressed that you are still awake, uh, Ruying, but I think we need to find a, a cross <laughs> here. And, we, and, we are way over bedtime. And I'm sure we will continue the philosophical discussions in the after after work here. Um, but let's try to, to find a close here as well. And, and perhaps we can start with you, Ruying. What's happening next in your life? Coming weeks, months, privately, professionally? What's, what's happening? Adjusting back to a Hong Kong Asian sleep cycle. (laughs) (laughs) And we didn't help help with that. Sorry for that. I keep having very exciting events like this at, you know, Mm. midnight times in Europe and America. It's hard to say no. And so that's making it difficult to adjust back. Um, So, yeah, I'm working on my first album, which is taking 10 years and (laughs) hoping to (laughs) call an end to that endless work. And so, so that's actually... Is that coming out now? Is, is it is it going, going going to be released like an album this year? You think? Are you there? I, I really hope so. But but <laughs> I'm yeah I'm kind of a really crazy perfect, perfectionist, and I especially you know when I'm also producing my own music partially, and yeah I'm like struggling for the point uh, one dB for like two months. So I just, yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm just an insane person when it comes to production. So I should probably find an engineer and just not do it myself. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's that album. And then research-wise, yeah, I have um, lots of kind of uh, projects um, that that's going on at the same time. I actually also started a, a little music startup in Hong Kong. So oh. that's very crazy. Do. But that's also happening. Uh, we're still trying to, to think about, you know, how to define what it is. But yeah, I have a good team and was kind of, you know, yeah, kind of doing a mu- the small music, um, creative, cultural um uh, arts brand um, in Hong Kong, and we'll do music. Will be part of it, um, and then AI song contest is is busy uh, doing its next uh, preparing for the next edition. So, when yeah. is the next? When is the how is it a, like a night like Eurovision Song Contest finale? When is that? So yeah, it's usually uh, usually it's in July uh, when, when when the final the the, the award ceremony happens, and I think for this year we're trying to. Uh, fix it for late July or yeah, I think it's going to be in late July. Um, cool. Yeah, we're still working working on that. It's going to be cool. um, exciting, different partners and yeah, um, I think we're, we're going with this model of maybe every year uh, having a different country as a host mm. and moving to different continents. Um, so yeah. It should be a virtual country like Gathertown. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that, av- yeah, avatar be- country. <laughs> Exactly. Like, you know, the conferences, the musicology, big conferences. Like metaverse. <laughs> yeah. One physical conference here and then then a virtual gather town conference. Yeah, it's happening. Ah, so so many things happening there. So young, cool. um, but awesome. Bob, what's happening next in your life? Tomorrow begins the vacation time where Ooh. I'm going to be playing a lot of accordion. Getting oh, back okay. to the machine generated. Oh, well, you folk should have music. brought to accordion if we knew. Yeah, the, that's why I brought the recordings. Um <laughs> Uh, Research-wise, I am uh, starting to organize the 2023 AI Music Generation Challenge. This is not the AI uh-huh. Song Contest. Ooh. This is this is a much more research-focused um, thing. But the theme of or the challenge of 2020 was Irish jigs. 2021 was the uh, Swedish Langpolska. 2022 was um, Irish reels. No. Okay. Irish. 2023 is going to be fake lore. Fake. <laughs> what is fake lore? Fake lore is like folklore, but it's fake, <laughs> and it's going to focus on using AI to generate music, legends, stories. Costumes. So we're gonna go and you, we're not gonna talk about the Vikings, but we're gonna talk about the Strikings. 
could be, could be. <laughs> How can someone find out more details about this? Um, are you going to publish something on, on KTH website yeah, or something? There's GitHub pages or GitLab pages for the tw- the, every one of the challenges we've had. But if you look at my website, project website, themosaic.wordpress.com, mm-hmm. you can find more information about the 2023 challenge soon. That sounds like an awesome cliffhanger. Yeah, awesome. You need to come back here and, and show us the results. Sure. I think we're going to organize a festival around the winning fake oh, lore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The winning fake lore. So because, be I, because can you imagine, you know, we, we get the next Tolkien coming up here, you know. We have the whole mm-hmm. world, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll have scholars give talks on this fake lore and music performances and maybe plays. And and, and, and in the end, there, there might be a Tolkien in the making here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rijing, anyone that you would recommend to come on this podcast, someone that you'd like to listen to uh, in, in a podcast like this? I will think about that and I'll email their names to you for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm an awesome. Yeah, 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 I, yeah totally. I, I definitely have names in mind and, you know, yeah. we can talk more about, yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Looking forward to that. Bob, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, w- I would recommend some of my PhD students. Yeah. Because you had lots of good conversations or questions about what it what PhD is about. Yeah. And they're still quite young mm. in their, their process. And yeah. so it might be nice uh, perspectives to have uh, from them. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm. You have to give us a list at some point. Certainly. Bob and Ryin, uh, I'm, I'm so impressed that you're still awake uh, and I love the discussion here. And also, uh, you know, since I'm a big um, fan of go- going a bit more philosophical and, and you really made that happen to to an extent that we've never seen before. So so yeah. thank you so Amazing. much, Ryin, for, for staying up this late and, and for this discussion. It was awesome. Total, total pleasure. And Bob, you know, pleasure as usual. Uh, looking forward to to meeting you again. And uh, yes, yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure to talk with you, Rujing. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for awesome getting show. me involved. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.